This is Jocko Podcast number 100 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. And we have a guest with us tonight who is in large part responsible for this podcast existing in the first place, who has provided massive support behind pretty much everything I've done, including books and podcasts and events and all this other stuff that I've been getting after for the last couple of years. <laughs> since I departed the shadows and stepped into the normal world. In fact, this is the person that pulled me from the shadows into the normal world, Mr. Tim Ferriss. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jocko. And we have you in a, an interesting state right now. <laughs> <laughs> you do. Because you just got done with a 10-day silent retreat and a five-day fast embedded in there somewhere right i did so it was my first 10 day you know what my, you know what my notes retreat. were in here after i said that my notes are dude question mark like dude because <laughs> 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 that's what that makes me think just like dude okay tell us about it a little bit i know you'll probably cover yeah, it in depth it was, later it but. was it was in retrospect probably layering a few too many things on top of one another but it was my first meditation retreat, also my first silent retreat combined and consisted of 10 days of waking up at 5.30. And I support that part. <laughs> beginning, I know it's sleeping in, but <laughs> starting at 5.30. Hadn't woken up with the stars in a while. And then sitting for 45 minutes of meditation, walking for 45 minutes of meditation and doing that until 9 p.m. with the exception of meals. But as you mentioned, I fasted for the first five days out of 10 because I wanted to see how that affected my state. And I sat during meals effectively, meaning meditated during those times as well. And it was uh, an intense, unexpectedly intense experience because it unlayers your psyche in a fashion that I hadn't experienced before. Since you have no distractions, you're not permitted to read, there's no music, there's no talking. You're discouraged from any writing. There are no devices. And that means there's no real escape from whatever is ricocheting inside your own head. And uh, as you go through the passing days, you drop into deeper layers of your personality and the stories that you've constructed for yourself, as well as direct experience and memories that you haven't thought of. And in my case, 20, 25 years, 30 years, 35 years, in some cases, these very vivid, intense memories that come back. And so people have a very difficult time at points. And the teachers are there every other day to interact uh, on a one-on-one -on -one basis to ensure that people don't have a complete psychotic break, I suppose. <laughs> Did you hear, random question, but would you hear people like crying uh, yeah. in their rooms or whatever? Heard people crying, uh, definitely heard people crying. Uh, people went through a lot of pain and there were sublime experiences as well in moments of deep clarity or... Uh, alleviation of suffering but I, I i think that and i was i was actually uh, just looking forward to describing the experience to our mutual friend uh dr peter atia who may be the most like cerebral intense impatient 
<laughs> analytical person I've ever met to a degree that even I find hilarious, which is <laughs> difficult to achieve in this world, in this world, in this life. Uh, and his level of obsession and perseverating on different, on concepts endlessly, uh, makes me want to do a second retreat with Peter <laughs> when he's not allowed to tell me how he's feeling. Because I think the more you have run your life through your prefrontal cortex, the harder you fall. And uh, I would not recommend it for most people. Really? Because I would have left the retreat three or four times probably were it not for one particular teacher who had decades of experience with tens of thousands of retreatants because I felt like I was going to leave in worse shape than I came in, that I had regressed to a very reactive emotional state and that it was going to be a huge handicap when I left. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was regressing tremendously and he was able to right the ship a little bit along the way. But if, if he had not been there and I had left even on day nine, I remember I was like, people are supposed to be in this deep state of bliss, or at least that was my perception. I feel like I've just been rubbed raw and all these nerves that I've numbed from difficult experiences in childhood and so on have just been exposed to the surface. Uh, so I think it's, uh, I think it requires a high level of supervision and this may not be the, the forum for, <laughs> discussing what I'm about to say, but for those people who have the experience, it might make some sense. It had the characteristics of a very, uh, a very strong psychedelic experience, but laid out over 10 days where there's no escape. So instead of ripping off the bandaid, you are being exposed to facets of your life and character that perhaps you have not faced in decades mm-hmm. so yeah it was a fun 10 days <laughs> we we get all, when you when you get sleep deprivation which i've gone through some yeah. significant sleep deprivation you know you have those kind of um you know you take a trip without leaving the farm type situations and, yeah. and for me it was nothing nothing crazy or anything you know i remember seeing stop signs in the ocean and uh traffic lights in the ocean and and stuff like that that's not crazy well okay crazy but it's not it wasn't some psychological sort of unpacking where i was meeting my former self or anything like that um but yeah you definitely that that's when i hear because i've never tried psychedelic drugs and when i when people talk about them to me it, it does not sound fun to me because I, I think that where I think that where I would end up would not be a happy place. Yeah. And, and I don't really need to hang out there very yeah. much. And I should, I should also say that I don't, in the case of the silent retreat or in the case of psychedelics, do it for fun. And in, I've had a few people ask me, uh, did you enjoy your experience? I had a few staffers afterwards. They're like, oh, did you enjoy your retreat? And I'm like, I found it valuable. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't use the word enjoy. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, you, you obviously are going to unpack this thing and I'm sure you'll do awesome episode talking about it. As you look back on it right now, your brain is 
<laughs> it's still it's still seventy percent there, and they told us at the end, which I thought was very appropriate because it applies to so many things. They said, uh, or one of the teachers said, "You're you you think you're normal right now, and you're not. You're very hypersensitive. Your retreat is half done, so it'll take ten days, the equivalent amount of time, to reintegrate and get retethered." And I remember thinking to myself, "I have a fucking book launch coming. I don't have ten days to gingerly walk my way back to reality." <laughs> but uh, nonetheless. Uh, that's true for so much, right? I mean, it's if you have a book and your book is 90% done, I remember I told uh, a more seasoned writer when I was writing my second book, I said, I'm 90% done. They said, oh, congratulations, you only have 50% left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the trim work. It's just like building a house. It's the yeah. trim work, that all that little stuff that yeah. takes longer than you think it's going to take. Well, so to just set the stage a little bit, um, number one, you were on this podcast before, which was an awesome episode, and you talked about some of your hard experiences gr- growing up and going through college and actually having suicidal thoughts and beyond that suicidal plans. That was podcast number 50, and it really helped out a lot of people. I got an immense amount of great feedback from people, and so thank you for doing that. And on that podcast, we also briefly discussed a novel called Musashi. And it's just this incredible book that you had read and I had read and the ending of the book is just full on epic and it's also a thousand page book and it takes the, the whole, the, 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 the ending of the book is literally the last page and a half. So that's it. You have to read a thousand pages to get to this thing, this ending. And we decided on that podcast that we would do, do that book for podcast 100. So here we are and we're going to talk about the book Musashi by Eiji Yoshikawa. Yep, Eiji Yoshikawa. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to accept the fact that I will be getting my Japanese pronunciation corrected <laughs> all day long. <laughs> I won't correct it unless you want me to correct it. Well, maybe after I get done with something, you could tell me, ah, it's just going to suck. That's all there is to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, the book, so if you don't know anything about it, Miyamoto Musashi great Japanese swordsman, and he wrote the book, The Book of Five Rings. Um, And I actually covered that book on podcast number 80. So if you haven't listened to 50, and if you haven't listened to 80, go listen to those two, and it'll give you some background, which I don't want to spend a bunch of time on there because we spend a bunch of time on it on that podcast. But here's the basic understanding of who Musashi was, born into a samurai family around 1584 fought his first duel at the age of 13 against a grown man who he killed by throwing him to the ground and beating him with a bakken. Bakken? Bokken. Bokken. Oh, yeah. this that's, is going to get a, ugly That's quick. a tough one. But, I, <laughs> but, but, but uh, yeah, wooden sword. Which is a wooden sword. See, I should have just said wooden sword. Yeah. We would have been good. <laughs> in that, in, and then through his life, he traveled and he did all kinds of things and he fought 60 sword duels. I used to think that they were all to the death but they actually weren't, right? Mm-hmm. Some of them were just, like if I, you could submit. You, you know, the opponent could just say, yep, you won. And you could agree beforehand what the rules of engagement would be. Oh, okay. So they could have a discussion and determine the extent to which you can inflict damage on the other person. So they weren't all to the death. They could have a, basically a gentleman's agreement, like, let's not kill each other today. Let's <laughs> only do this one to broken bones and handicapping. How do you, you gotta, you gotta, that's a hardcore um, 
conversation. Yeah, but how do you how do you come off not looking like the the, the wussy? You don't want to be the right? first one to say, "Hey, yeah, let's just yeah, break bones you know, today." Well, let's just break bones. You know, <laughs> you just be like, "No, we'll go to the death." That's it. Yeah, that's weird. Uh, but yeah, so but a bunch of them were to the death. A lot. Of a lot of them were to the death, and again, um, that then he got done with that all that fighting and he wrote the book of five rings. He also wrote a book or a like steps called Dokodo. Close. <sighs> Japanese has this, this stutter constant. And for people who are wondering why am I at the, the like Japanese conciliary, it's, it's because I lived in Japan. It's my first trip overseas ever uh, from 15 to 16 as an exchange student where I was the only not, I was the only American in a, a 5,000 person Japanese high school where I also wore a uniform and did judo and lived with a Japanese family for an entire year. So that is why I'm commenting on Japanese. Dokodo, dokodo, doku is uh, alone. Ko is to walk, let's say. Do is way. It's the same do from judo or aikido, which is way. So it's the way of walking alone. Yeah, and I, I should have said that. That's the reason why I thought it would be awesome to have you on here because you do have this knowledge not only of the language but of the culture, and you did this. You did, you've done a bunch of weird stuff. Cool. Yeah, yabus, cool. yabusame, Japanese horseback archery. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, also pretty dangerous. Turns out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and so that's what that's why I wanted to have you on here because you've got a ma- massive amount of knowledge that I don't have. So again, and that that dokodo. Close enough. We're going with it. Let's roll with it. Is is covered in podcast eighty as well, and also, this is a spoiler alert. And I guess I should do this every time I do a book because I do books on here a lot, and I always tell what's going to happen. But for this one, this is a spoiler alert because the book it does have the most epic ending. I think it most be it might be the the most epic ending of any book. I, I honestly think that it might be that, and we are going to cover it. So. If you want to read this book, then, and we gave you about a year to read it, but if you haven't read it yet, maybe you're not going to read it and you should just listen. But if you do want to read the book and get the full satisfaction of it, then stop right now and then go read Musashi. <laughs> Take another year to read yeah, it. <laughs> which is a thousand pages long. And and then come back and listen to us. So can I say one thing, John? Yeah, though? absolutely. All right. This book... And we can get back into some of the history, but I bought this book. I have a paperback version decades ago in Tokyo at a bookstore called Kinokunya in Shinjuku. It's a huge bookstore. It's, I want to say, at least four floors, maybe six or seven. And I carried it around, giving myself scoliosis for years and years because I was so intimidated by this thing. It's it's a few inches thick. The, the paper is... It's like onion skin. And I was like, oh, God, I just can't. Every time I pick it up, I just, oh, God, I can't get into this. Once I started, I could not put it down, and I finished it in a couple of days. I mean, it's it's that good. So it's don't be intimidated by this by the size. It's not it's not as much of a, a slog as you would expect. No. Once you, once you get into it, you just get sucked in. And the read the writing is beautiful. It's very clean, very clean writing, and the story is. That's another thing I should say too is th- th- so there's a bunch of intertwining narratives in there about a bunch of different people and characters and they they all are interesting and impactful and and they all add to the story. Obviously for a couple hour podcast we can't get into all those and and really we'll be hitting like this this the the main plot line I guess. But there's all these other things that are that are going on that we just don't have time to touch on that are 
that are really great to read about. And there's so many. If this guy would have been a screenwriter. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. The dialogue alone yeah. makes yeah. the book worth it. Yeah. It's it's just a, a great book. And that's that. Um, I guess we might as well get into it a little bit. And when we did, when I did Podcast 80 with the Book of Five Rings, I started with the beginning of this book. And I said when I did that, that when we do this book, I'm reading it again because <laughs> it's so legit. Uh, so here we go. Takazo. Is that right? Takazo. Takazo. Takazo lay among the corpses. There were thousands of them. The whole world's gone crazy, he thought dimly. A man might as well be a dead leaf floating in the autumn breeze. He himself looked like one of the lifeless bodies surrounding him. He tried to raise his head, but could only lift it a few inches from the ground. He couldn't remember ever feeling so weak. How long have I been here? He wondered. Flies came buzzing around his head. He wanted to brush them away, but couldn't even muster the energy to raise his arm. It was stiff, almost brittle like the rest of his body. I must have been out for quite a while, he thought wiggling one finger at a time. Little did he know he was wounded with two bullets lodged firmly in his thigh. Low, dark clouds shifted ominously across the sky. The night before, sometime between midnight and dawn, a blinding raid had drenched the plain of Segijahara. It was now past noon on the 15th of the ninth month of 1600. Though the typhoon had passed, now and then fresh torrents of rain would fall on the corpses onto Tikazo's upturned face. Each time it came, he opened and closed his mouth like a fish trying to drink in the droplets. It's like the water they wipe a dying man's lips with, he reflected, savoring each bit of moisture. His head was numb, his thoughts the fleeting shadows of delirium. His side had lost. He knew that much. Hadiaki, supposedly an ally, had been secretly in league with the Eastern Army, and when it turned on Mitsunari's troops at twilight, the tide of the battle turned too. He then attacked the armies of the other commanders, Yukita, Shimazu, Konishi, and the collapse of the Western Army was complete. In only half a day's fighting, the question of who would henceforth rule the country was settled. It was Tokujawa Yasu, the powerful Idai's Daimo. Images of his sister and the old villagers floated before his eyes. I'm dying, he thought, without a tinge of sadness. Is this what it's really like? He felt drawn to the peace of death like a child mesmerized by a flame. So that's how the book kind of kicks off. And this guy was just born on the battlefield, basically, and is fighting in these savage battles as a, as, as a kid. As a kid. Um, and I, I think it's interesting that you start the book where a guy's about to die, you know, and I think that's, there's something significant to that, and it's not the only time in the book where he's about to die. He he faces these bad situations over and over again, and um, 
again, this we just have to fast forward through massive chunks of this book. And I was just going to make one yeah, comment absolutely. for those people who are wondering why we're saying Takezul. Mm-hmm. So Takezul is it is represented by the same two characters that can also be read as Musashi. So there are different readings for characters in Japanese depending on if they are adapted Chinese readings or native Japanese readings. So Musashi is the what would be called the the kunyomi or the Japanese reading and takezo, same two characters would be the Chinese reading. Basically, I mean the Chinese origin reading, which is called onyomi. So it's the same person. Takezo so and then Musashi. Are the Japanese and Chinese characters related linguistically? Uh, they are very, very similar. So the uh, the Japanese took Chinese characters, which they call kanji, and they converted them into two what are referred to as syllabaries. So we have an alphabet, A, B, C, D. We have vowels and consonants. In Japanese, they have what are called syllabaries, meaning they are syllables instead of individual letters. So you have kakiku keiko, mamimume mo, sashi tsuseiso, and uh, which is part of the reason why Japanese have so much trouble with almost every language. <laughs> they kind of got robbed when like the gods were handing out sounds. <laughs> so they have trouble with a lot of languages, including English. But nonetheless, uh, the uh, those were simplified versions of the characters. So for instance, the character for uh, that you could say represents peace in Chinese, which is an. So for instance, like, uh, peace, the word in Chinese would be anquan. So I've spent time in China as well. In Japanese, it's anzeng. It's, all, it's very similar. And then the character for an is, has a roof and then a woman under a roof. And that represents peace. That was then modified into the sound ah, the vowel ah. And uh, there are fewer strokes in that. So that's some of the framework for the Japanese writing systems. They have two syllabaries and then the Chinese characters that they use. The the languages are not mutually intelligible though, are they? Not at all. Uh, now there are certain words that are not terribly close, but maybe uh, what you would find say between Portuguese and Spanish, okay. for instance. So you would have a word like uh, telephone, which is literally uh, electric talk, which is, so, and even electricity has cloud and uh, dragon underneath it, which is kind of cool. But anyway, the that's denghua in Japanese, dianghua in Mandarin, and then zhenghua in Korean, because a lot of the words in Korea were also borrowed from the Chinese characters. So. Uh, but beyond that, the, the grammar, everything else is completely, completely different. And well, I think I actually in here cover where he gets where he comes up with a new name or when he decides to take the new name. Yeah, so the guy that I'm talking about in the beginning, as Tim just pointed out, that is Musashi Takezo. Takezo. <sighs> yeah, Takezo. It's a tough Takezo. one. The Zo is a long O. So Takezo. 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 There and that is Musashi. Exactly. And you'll find that out shortly. And, uh, for those people who are watching the video, that is Takezo and Musashi. Those two characters. Oh, okay. Anyway. What, so what is that? What does the rest of that thing say? It's a bookmark? What is this, that? This is the wrapping oh. that was put around the cover of this book in the English section in Kinokunya Bookstore so that people could figure out what the content was without, without having to read the back jacket in English. 
So this is, you know, Musashi, Umi o Wataru, Kokumin Bungaku, so on and so forth. And then Miyamoto Musashi, and then Yoshikawa Eiji is all here, and then a little description on the back. Are there just copies of this? Everyone read this in Japan? This, I am maybe misremembering this, but I remember at the time looking at this book and reading about the, as they would call it on the back cover, the best-selling samurai epic, and somewhere reading that this book has sold something absurd, like 20 million plus copies in a country of a, whatever it might be, 150 million people. That seems, now that I've been through the book process a few times, like it cannot be true, <laughs> but it is a very, very, very famous book in Japan. Yeah. And everybody's going to know who, uh, they would say Miyamoto Musashi, so right. they would give the last name first. Everyone is going to know who this guy is. And they have, I mean, hundreds of comic books and so on, historical comic books, fictional comic books that have been written about Musashi. Yeah, and this thing originally came out in a series, I think, in um, 1939 or 1933 or 1935 or something like that. And it originally came out as a series, I think, in like a magazine or something. Am it, I getting it that right? Quite, quite possibly uh, could be the case. I don't know. I'm pretty sure. So we'll go with it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now we are going to get to a point where, again, we're fast forwarding it. And at this point, Musashi's been accused of murder and he's been hung from a tree. And Takuan. Takuan, yeah. Takuan, yes. <laughs> Takuan is sort of this kind of traveling priest on any sort of counseling and, and advising and, yeah, just sort of counseling and advising Musashi at this point. And he's kind of wandering around as Musashi's now been accused of murder and hung up, the, up in this tree where they're going to eventually kill him. And here we, here we go. Going to the book. Takuan, save me. Takizo's cry for help was loud and plaintive. The branch was beginning to tremble as though it, as though the whole tree were weeping. I want to be a better man. I realize how important it is. What a privilege it is to be born human. I'm almost dead, but I understand what it means to be alive. And now that I know, my whole life will consist of being tied to this tree. I can't undo what I've done. You're finally coming to your senses. For the first time in your life, you're talking like a human being. I don't want to die, Takazoa cried. I want to live, I want to go out, try again, do everything right this time. His body convulsed with his sobbing. Takawan, please, help me, help me. The monk shook his head. Sorry, Takazo, it is out of my hands. It is the law of nature. You can't do things over again. That's life. Everything in it is for keeps, everything. You can't put your head back on after the enemies cut it off. That's the way it is. Of course, I feel sorry for you, but I can't undo that rope because it wasn't me who tied it. It was you. All I can do is give you some advice. Face death bravely and quietly. Say a prayer and hope some 
someone bothers to listen. And for the sake of your ancestors, Tekazo, have the decency to die with a peaceful look on your face. The clatter of Takwan's sandals faded into the distance. He was gone, and Takazo cried no more. Following the spirit of the monk's advice, he shut the eyes that had just experienced a great awakening and forgot everything. He forgot about living and dying, and under the myriad of tiny stars, lay perfectly still as the night breeze sighed through the tree. He was cold. Very cold. I mean, obviously, wrote a book called Extreme Ownership where you're responsible for your actions and you need to take responsibility for things in your lives. But this thing where he says, I can't untie the rope because it wasn't me that, was, that tied it. It was you. You put yourself in this position. And that's, that's the way it is. Once your head is cut off, you can't put it back on. Musashi or Takazo gets... He, he, he does crazy stuff too, right? He's, yeah. he's young and he does crazy things. And one of the crazy things he does is his sister's in some kind of jail or something and he just like attacks it. And, and he loses and he, he gets arrested and he gets put in prison for three years. And at this point, he's getting released from jail after he's been in jail for three years. And again, obviously, I'm, I just skipped three years of this guy's jail time, which actually is pretty short in the book. It, it, they don't spend a lot of time in jail. Uh, but... He's been in jail for three years. He gets out, and here we, he's, he's having a conversation, and here we go. Takazo smiled silently. I want to wander about on my own for a while. And then Takwan, who's back, that's who he's having the conversation with, sorry. He says, you should na- change your first name too, Takwan interjected. Why not read the Chinese characters of your name as Musashi instead of Takazo? You can keep writing your name as the same as before, it's only fitting that everything should begin anew on this day of your rebirth. Miyamoto Musashi, it's a good name, a very good name. We should drink to it. The following day, they both left the castle. Musashi was talking, Musashi was taking his first steps into a new life, a life of discipline and training in the martial arts. During his three-year incarceration, he had resolved to master the art of war. Explain the the first the first last name thing Miyamoto is that that's a place right or is it is it uh, in this case in many cases uh, it refers to originally a place so my understanding is that Miyamoto refers to whether it's a town or a village or pro- not province it would be smaller where his family originated from it's not always the case but even if you look at English names, you find the same thing, right. right? So it could have been in English and in a lot of languages, it often relates to an early vocation. So Ferris, for instance, comes from Ferris, like F-E-R-R-O-U-S, like ferrous oxide, iron, mm. because way back in the day, at some point, my family worked with metals, and that's where the name comes from. Uh, is Miyamoto the first name or the last name? Miyamoto is the last name. So similarly, the authors of this, the author of this book, Eiji Yoshikawa, the Yoshikawa is the last name. And but why do I say Miyamoto Musashi? The Japanese always say the last name first. Okay. They say the family name first. Except for in this guy's case, E.G. What the, so this is because they do this it's been it's translated English. into English. Got it. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. 
making some progress so here. So for instance, in <laughs> very slow progress <laughs> with Jocko. <laughs> Intellectual capability maxing out. We're there. <laughs> yeah, so in, in in Japan, for instance, even as a young kid, when you're talking to your friends, you you would never, I, I can't recall even once saying someone's first name. You would just say, uh, Oi, you know, Yamamoto, Tanaka. Like you would, so I'd you, call you Ferris. Yeah. You'd yeah. call me In Will. my case, because Ferris was like not confusing, but they knew I was American and Tim, mm. like Timu, as they would say, uh, was shorter. So they just called me Timu. Yeah. Team was on, team well, I mean, you get that in the military too, where everyone kind of gets introduced by your last name and everyone, for a while, everyone just kind of calls each other, you know, Willink, Ferris, yeah. Charles, you know. Right. So, yep. but that's how they address each other pretty normally. Oh yeah. The, all the time. Yeah. With the exception of saying my host family, where I'm dealing with everybody who has the same last name, it would get very confusing. <laughs> so then I would call them by their first names. Check. Check. All right. Now, this book does have a romantic interest in it i hate to inform everyone and it's so it's it's absolutely worth coming covering because it's the 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 way it gets handled throughout is just freaking epic <laughs> so his romantic interest is a woman named otsu otsu mm-hmm. oh yes see um otsu and he's again I, we can't cover the whole story but this is his romantic interest and we will, he's, he's, she's in and out of the story. And, and the, the main point is that even though he's desires her and wants to be with her at the same time, there's something that's more important to him. And that is the way of the sword. So here we go back to the book. Musashi covered her small white hand, which was resting on the railing with his own. Listen, he said plaintively, I beg of you just stop and think what's there to think about. I told you I've just become a new man. I stayed in that musty hole for three years. I read books. I thought. I screamed and cried. Then suddenly the light dawned. I understood what it means to be human. I have a new name, Miyamoto Musashi. I want to dedicate myself to training and discipline. I want to spend every moment of every day working to improve myself. I now know how far I have to go. If you choose to bind your life to mind, you'll never be happy there will be nothing but hardship and it won't get any easier as it goes along it'll get more and more difficult when you talk like that I feel closer to you than ever now I'm convinced I was right I found the best man I could ever find even if I search for the rest of my life he saw he was just making things worse I'm sorry I just can't take you with me Well, then I'll just follow along. As long as I don't interfere with your training, what harm would it do? You won't even know I'm around. Musashi could find no answer. I won't bother you, I promise. He remained silent. It's all right then, isn't it? Just wait here. I'll be back in a second, and I'll be furious if you try and sneak away. Otsu ran off towards the basket weaving shop. Musashi thought of ignoring everything and running too, in the opposite direction. Though the will was there, his feet couldn't move. Otsu looked back and called, Remember, don't try to sneak off. She smiled, showing her dimples, and Musashi inadvertently nodded. Satisfied by this gesture, she disappeared into the shop. If he was going to escape, this was the time. 
His heart told him so, but his body was still shackled by Otsu's pretty dimples and pleading eyes. How sweet she was. It was certain no one in the world would save his sister or save his sister loved him so much. And it wasn't as though he disliked her. He looked at the sky. He looked into the water, desperately gripped the railing, troubled and confused. Soon tiny bits of wood began floating from the bridge into the flowing stream. Otsu reappeared on the bridge in new straw sandals, light yellow leggings, and a large traveling hat tied under the chin with a crimson ribbon. She'd never looked more beautiful. But Musashi was nowhere to be seen. With a cry of shock, she burst into tears. Then her eyes fell upon the spot on the railing from which the chips of wood had fallen. There, carved with the point of a dagger, was the clearly inscribed message, Forgive me. Forgive me. I love how measured his emotions are in the prose. Like he, he clearly did not dislike her. Yeah, that's heavy. That's like that's like I love you in Takezo speech. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. But yeah, that is the that is the nightmare scenario for women right yeah. there. <laughs> that is it. That's abandonment issues. Yeah, number and, one. And having spent um, you know quite some time in the, in the SEAL teams. You know, this, this, this is a real thing. You know, guys, they have to choose between this girl and their job. And of course, some guys can wake at work and blah, blah, blah. And I did a pretty decent job of making it work. But I, I'm telling you, it's a hard, there's a 90% divorce rate in the SEAL teams and the military is high. So this is a real choice that guys had to make. And it's, it can be really hard. And that's just a nightmare scenario. And, and honestly, what's jacked up is that the guys are actually trying to do the right thing. They're actually trying, they're, they're looking at a girl saying, look, you, you, you don't want to sign up for this. Like, this is not going to be fun. And, you know, of course, people fall in love and they, those emotions start to take over ridiculously. And, and you know, it's, it's one of those things. But that's a nightmare scenario it, for a girl. Yeah. And for a guy, I think this is the weird thing. And I, I can't speak guy, girl. I can't speak for girls because I'm not one. But for most guys, they read that and they kind of go, yeah. At least I do, right? <laughs> do you? Do you? No. I get it. I mean, I'm... I'm Echo's a softie. He doesn't I, I've, I've been drinking the, the Japan and Samurai Kool-Aid for so long that I'm just like, oh, yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. I bet if we had, you know those little um, like meters where people can vote? Yeah. Or, or like this <laughs> spike on the presidential debates where things would be like people really agree with this thing? If you had that right there and males between the ages of 18 and 35 were hearing that, they're all like, yeah, yeah, walk away, dude. <laughs> That's what they're thinking. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. yeah. The, the, and I'm, uh, for the SEAL teams, that's the totally normal culture. Yeah. Oh, yeah, bro, you got to choose the teams. You got to choose the teams first. You know, oh, you, you don't want to, you know, don't want to put her through this. So that's kind of messed up. But it's the reality. Sorry. Well, especially imagine if your your intention is to go dual people to the death repeatedly. Yeah. I mean the the odds are not in your favor. Yeah. Eventually, someone's gonna be better than you. What was that? Do you have that section mark that you were reading about how he felt about people that had gotten the upper hand on him? Because that was pretty epic. 
Oh, let me find it. So, and that way people don't have to listen to a bad Japanese pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Let's see. All right, here we go. <laughs> the adversaries he had. I'm not going to do as good a job of reading as Jocko. He's he's well practiced. Plus, he has. The, the audiobook voice of Jocko Willink. <laughs> the, the adversaries he had defeated, even the ones he had killed or half killed, always disappeared from his mind like so much froth. But he couldn't forget anyone who got the better of him in any way, or for that matter, anyone in whom he sensed an overpowering presence. That was the line I underlined. Anyone in whom he sensed an overpowering presence. Men like that dwelt in his mind like living spirits, and he thought constantly of how one day he might be able to overshadow them. Yeah, that's, that's, that's deep right there, drive. And that's also ego issues, clearly. Oh, yeah. Those are people are hard to deal with. And, when they, and unless you recognize that it's your own ego that's causing these problems. Because huh. a lot of people are so intimidated by... I've seen that many times where you, know, you get like a young seal that's a real badass, and he's coming up, and there, some of the... Some of the senior seals maybe that are also badass you know basically you get two alpha males in a room and it can be problematic and unless one of them realizes the old guy realizes usually it's the old guy that realizes hey there's a young buck coming up what i should do is try and help him instead of trying to keep him down because i'm jealous and that's what musashi's has that attitude of you know he doesn't he doesn't care about the people that are that he beats yeah, yeah, he's like the Steve Jobs of Samurai. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, I was thinking about this. Um, on your podcast, it would be awesome if you did like if you if you did like the Jobs book and you you read parts of it and you yeah. thought about it. I thought I think that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, you know, I I've, I've 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 considered it because I've I've listened to a lot of your episodes uh, as you're going through books and I have all my highlights. Furthermore, and you saw this earlier, I showed you my index that I created for your book, mm -hmm. the field manual. And I also have, I noticed, this is what I was looking at as you were reading, my own index at the beginning of Musashi with the page numbers and things that I found interesting. So I have everything locked and loaded and ready to go yeah. for I, all of these books that I've read. I think it'd be awesome, especially because like, for instance, you know, I do books about war primarily cause that's what I can relate to the, the most. But you know, if you were reading business books and, and you were talking about, you know, what these people went through and, and then you could relate it to what you did and how, yeah. you know, it's just, I think it'd be, I, think I like, be I like the idea of biographies I, because I, I recently not to digress too far, but I interviewed, Walter Isaacson, who I know, actually, who wrote the Jobs book, and because he just finished a new book on Da Vinci, which is spectacular. And yeah, what, I, I actually noticed that book um, because it's outselling my book. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Walter, well, just, good right, for you, Walter. We're, we're, we're going to go off the rails for a second, but so every year, or every time I have a book come out, there's Ina Garten who writes cookbooks, Barefoot Contessa, who for whatever reason, always comes out in the same week and then is just like lining the wall. She has her own walls in the bookstores. I'm like, how am I going to compete against walls? Yeah. I'm trying to get an end cap. <laughs> and then also on Amazon, every time I have a book come out, literally every time, I took a screenshot of it a couple weeks ago and I said, man, this book is so hardcore. It's so undefeatable. Giraffes can't dance. It's a children's book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's... it's 
uh, it is it is always just slaying yeah. my books on Amazon. <laughs> Fortunately, not the same category for the bestseller lists. But uh, yes, biographies and uh, and going through those to tie in pieces would also be fun because I could I could compare my mindset and state. Uh, my development at the time that I made the highlights with my observations yeah. now. A hundred percent. And I think, again, I think that would be, I think a lot of people get a lot out of it because you got something out of it and then you get to look back on it. You get three perspectives. You get the person's perspective, perspective. you get your old perspective and you get your current perspective. Yeah. That's pretty legit. Yeah. That's a lot of growth and knowledge coming from, you know, a pretty quick statement. So I, I just want to read one more note it. since it's right across from what I just read. The anyone in whom he sensed an overpowering presence. And I don't have the full context here because I'm, I'm just looking at independent highlights. But it, it appears that Musashi has been approached by several men in some environment and they're asking him questions. Uh, small talk. Musashi wondered why they were taking up their time and his with their small talk. It became apparent that he would not find out unless he asked. So the next time there was a break in the conversation, he said, presumably you came because you have some business with me. <laughs> I just love these lines. The dialogue is so, so awesome. Yeah. If they, you, they feigned surprise at the very idea, but soon admitted that they had come on what they regarded as a very important mission. And then it goes on and on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so many good lines in there. So many good lines. Here's a good here's a good part moving along in in the story here. He has throughout this thing, it's uh when when I was a kid and you remember you'd watch what was the Saturday morning or one day they'd have kung fu theater. Yeah, I think sure. it was actually called kung fu theater. Yeah. And on kung fu theater it was always these, you know, my school against your school and 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 you know, you go, oh, that, that seems neat, but that's real. Like that yeah. stuff really happened. And he had these feuds with various schools of martial arts, like you'd see in Kung Fu theater. And in this particular one, he had gone and kind of whooped up on this one school. And then, but like the leader wasn't there. And so he writes a letter and here's the letter that Musashi writes, which is to Yoshioka. Yoshioka. Oh, beautiful. The I same Yoshi that is in Yoshikawa. It's the oh, same okay. character. Mm -hmm. What does Yoshi mean? Yoshi. I'd have to look at it. Same. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I don't recall off him, but Yoshida, Yoshi this, Yoshi that, Yoshi no ya, all that. Same Yoshi. And this is Yoshioka. Mm -hmm. So here's what Musashi writes the letter. He says, I am told that you and your disciples are searching for me. As it happens, I am on the... I am now on the Yamoto High Road, my intention being to travel around in general area of Iga and Issei for about a year to continue my study of swordsmanship. I do not wish to change my plans at this time, but since I regret as much as you do that I was unable to meet you during my previous visit to your school, I should like to inform you that I shall certainly be back in the capital by the first or second months of next year. Between now and then, I expect to improve my technique considerably. I trust that you yourself will not neglect your practice. It would be a great shame if Yoshioka Kempo's flourishing school were to suffer an, a second defeat like the one it sustained last time I was there. In closing, I send my respectful wishes for your continued health. Miyamoto Musashi. So I, I love the little jabs. Yeah. Your flourishing school, <laughs> wink, <laughs> ha ha. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's so jacked up. But yeah, that's old school talking smack, right? Respect. That's like kind of what they do in the British Parliament. Right. Oh, Hamilton, if you see the play, same thing. I haven't seen it's it. It's like, with kindest regards, after you basically say, I want to meet you and duel you and shoot you in the face. <laughs> with kindest regards and wishes for your continued health. You know, we've lost that. There's something to that, isn't there? You know? Yeah, yeah. Like, can't you just have a feud and still be respectful yeah. to someone? Yeah. I respect your intellect and your capacities, and yet I will stop at nothing bef- until I destroy you. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is another uh, dojo storm, which... Again, this is a modern term that I think jujitsu people created. I don't know. Did you ever use the term? I've jiu- never dojo? heard that before. You've never heard dojo storm before? No. Oh, <laughs> dojo storm is when you take your jujitsu guys and you go to another. And this happened. It again in San Diego. San Diego, where we live, is is it's gone through the phase already of all the schools being all all. Um, uh, battling against each other and and really the battle there's multiple reasons one of them is because back in the day before youtube you could actually have moves that you could keep contained in your school Mm -hmm. and you could say hey look don't show anyone this because we're going to use this in the next tournament and we want to which is exactly what happened in japan too by the way so with these schools with these schools so you'd have secret moves well now honestly with youtube and every competition is on youtube and you can watch anybody from any school and you can see what moves they're doing and there's all this online so so basically there's no more secret school knowledge anymore the other thing is economically at one time it, it was don't leave my school because you're my student. You're giving me 150 bucks a month. And so don't go to another school. And what that did, initially it worked. You could keep your students. But people realized that if you want to get good, you have to get out and train with other people sometimes. And so if you weren't going to let me go and train at other schools sometimes, I'm not going to train at your school. And so they would actually end up losing students by trying to keep the students. So I think that's what kind of leveled San Diego out and other areas that are high concentration jujitsu, Because... Yeah, it's because now it's, you know, people will come and go and train at different schools and everyone's cool and it's it's just a much more mellow atmosphere. Yeah, than well, it used I remember to be. in 2000 when I first moved to the Bay Area and was training in jiu-jitsu and I walked into the school to take my first class and they had, it wasn't very well written from a legal standpoint, but they had an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement that they had people sign so right. that they would not teach the, the inner workings and techniques of said school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, amazing. It used to be a lot tighter. And I think YouTube pretty much is the thing that destroyed that. Yeah. Uh, but, but back in the day, the dojo storms would take place, which was we would go from one school and go to another school. That was, let's say a school was saying, oh, we'll beat these guys or we have better jujitsu. Oh, really? You got better jujitsu? Cool. Hello. How you doing? We're here to see whose jujitsu is better. And it's a dojo storm and show up and and you, you know everything is determined on the mat. That's a beautiful thing about jujitsu. Uh, so this is old school uh, dojo storming, and this is against Hozoin. Hozoin. I'd have to see. Yeah. How's it spelled? H O Z O I N. Yeah, Hozoin. That's right. Um, here we go for a dojo storm, and he's 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 showing up there, kind of looking for where the school is he's kind of like a little bit lost looking around for where the actual school is and there's a priest that he's working with when he reappeared the priest handed him a registry and ink box saying write down your name and where you studied and what style you use he spoke as though instructing a child the title on the registry was list of persons visiting this temple to study steward of the hoizoin 
Musashi opened the book and glanced over the names, each listed under the date on which the samurai or student had called. Following the style of the last entry, he wrote down the required information, omitting the name of his teacher. The priest, of course, was especially interested in that. Musashi's answer was essentially the one he'd given at the Yoshiko school. He had practiced the use of the truncheon under his father without working very hard at it. Since making up in his mind to study in earnest, he had taken as his teacher everything in the universe, <laughs> as well as the example set by his predecessors throughout the country. He ended up by saying, I'm still in the process of learn learning. Hmm, you probably know this already, but since the time of our first master, the Hozoin has been celebrated everywhere for its lance techniques. The fighting that goes on here is rough, and there are no exceptions. Before you go on, perhaps you better read what's written at the beginning of the registry. Musashi picked up the book, opened it, and read the stipulation, which he had skipped over before. It said, having come here for the purpose of study, I absolve the temple of all responsibility in the event that I suffer bodily injury or I'm killed. I agree to that, said Musashi with a slight grin. It amounted to no more than common sense for anyone committed to becoming a warrior. All right, this way. So that's the introduction. And that's actually cool too. That's an old school jujitsu thing. When you come in for, the, the other thing that would happen is challenge matches. And I don't know if you've seen videos from the old school Gracie Academy at the challenge matches. Yeah, oh yeah. But those guys would come in and sign a waiver like, hey, if you die, we're not, we're not liable. Yeah, this is the, uh, the old... Uh the like gray market, black market, copy over copy VHS of Gracie in action. Yeah. I yeah. That. Yeah. We had my, my old teacher, Fabio Santos, and he had videos of himself doing Gracie challenge matches at the Gracie school up in Torrance and he would play him for us. And it's the same thing. Yep. Sign your waiver. And then you're going to get your arm broken yeah. by the way. First, <laughs> I break your leg. Then I put you in my guard. <laughs> <laughs> so, at this point, he goes into this school, and there's some badass. He's not the head of the school, but he's like their best guy, and he's up there kicking everyone's ass. He's saying, next, and he roughs a guy up and kicks his ass. Then next, roughs that guy up. Next, and finally, no one else wants to fight him. And here we go. This guy's name is Ag Agon, A-G-O-N. Agon, yeah. It's Agon. It's an unusual one. He's the guy that's been roughing everyone up. Is there is there no one else, bellowed Agon? Now holding his practice lance horizontally, the brawny steward was comparing his registry with the faces of the waiting men. He pointed at one. No, not today. I'll come again some other time. How about you? No, I don't feel quite up to it today. <laughs> one by one, they backed out until Musa Musashi saw the finger pointing at him. How about you? If you please. If you please? What's that supposed to mean? <laughs> it means I'd like to fight. <laughs> Um. Yeah, and so he he's gonna go, and and I'm gonna pull a couple highlights out of this thing, but 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 the this guy, if you please. if you please, so this guy Agon, he he immediately does like a practice run at some board that he puts his lance right through, and it's sort of like an intimidation tactic, mm -hmm. right? He, oh, you want to train? Cool, watch this! Ah! <laughs> and he screams and he puts his lance right through this this uh right through this thing. And actually, there's a there's a the old guy that had brought him into that had brought in Musashi's looking at him and saying, "Hey, um, don't be a fool. You look stupid. That's not a board you're about to take on." Meaning, like you just killed the board. 
the piece of wood, but that's this guy is not just a, a board. Um, bricks don't hit back. Yeah, bricks don't, and 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 paper <laughs> targets don't shoot back, and they don't move. That's something I've said many many times. Um, Musashi then says after he does this, you know, like this crazy scream and puts his lance through the wood, he says, "Are you ready now?" <laughs> <laughs> Back to the book. This solicitude drove Agon wild. His muscles were like steel. When he jumped, he did so with awesome lightness. His feet seemed to be on the floor and in the air at the same time, quivering like the moonlight on ocean waves. Musashi stood perfectly still, or so it seemed. There was nothing unusual about his stance. He held his sword straight out with both hands, but being slightly smaller than his opponent and not so conspicuously muscular, he looked almost casual. The greatest difference was in their eyes. Musashi's were sharp as a bird, their pupils a clear coral tinted with blood. Agon shook his head, perhaps to shake off the streams of sweat pouring down from his forehead, perhaps to shake off the old man's warning words. Had they lingered on? Was he attempting to cast them out of his mind? Whatever the reason, he was extremely agitated. He repeatedly shifted his position trying to draw out Musashi, but Musashi remained motionless. Agon's lunge was accompanied by a piercing scream. In the split second that decided the encounter, Musashi parried and counterattacked. What happened? Agon's fellow priests hastily ran over and crowded around him in a black circle. In the general confusion, some tripped over his practice lance and, and went sprawling. A priest stood up, his hands and chest smeared with blood, shouting, Medicine! Bring the medicine! Quick! You won't need any medicine. It was the old man who had come in the front entrance and qu quickly assessed the situation. His face turned sour. If I thought medicine would save him, I wouldn't have tried to stop him in the first place. So that's it. Musashi, one shot, one kill, takes the dude out. And um, interestingly, here's the advice. So that guy that had taken him in is the actual master. And... He says, uh, is your name Miyamoto Musashi? That's correct. Under whom did you study the martial arts? I've had no teacher in the ordinary sense. My father taught me how to use the truncheon when I was young. Since then, I've picked up a number of points from the older samurai in, samurai in various provinces. I've also spent some time traveling about the countryside, learning from the mountains and the rivers. I regard them, too, as teachers. You seem to have the right attitude but you're so strong, much too strong. Believing he was being praised, Musashi blushed and said, oh no, I'm still immature. I'm always making blunders. That is not what I mean. Your strength is your problem. You must learn to control it, become weaker. What's also fun to do, and I'm thinking about doing this uh, when I reread this book in full again, is to spend some time on YouTube watching uh, high-level kendo competition to see how fast it is yeah just to get an idea of the how much can transpire in the blink of an eye is there a referee that calls it as a kill shot how does it how does it get scored and there judged? Are, there are referees so i had a chance to uh to train in kendo when i went back to japan about eight years ago something like that eight or ten years ago and i trained at this place called uh, kumei kang and I still have the armor, still have everything. And you, you have to, much like calling your shots in pool, you have to call your target a split second before you hit it or as you hit it. So mm. you'd say like, men is head, uh, 
do is abdomen, kote is the gauntlet or the arm, and then tsuki is a jab to the throat, which is pretty nasty. Uh, and you line up in such a way the sword is the tip of the sword is basically pointing at your opponent's throat as you track them. Mm-hmm. And you can see, uh, but there are referees in cases of any type of, they're definitely referees in cases of any dispute. They're very rarely disputes, but it's so subtle and the, the, the misses are so close, much like really, maybe high, really, really high level boxing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, when someone parries, it's not like it's traveling a foot to the side of their yeah. head. It's just grazing the side of their head and then they counterpunch. And you see it in kendo, the movement's just faster. So it's really wild to Do see. Do you get your bell rung when you get hit? I expected, because I saw the armor, and the, yeah. and the armor seems pretty hard, that you don't, you absolutely get your bell rung. Especially, I remember my first class, and I, you know, I'm bigger than a lot of Japanese guys. Not all. I mean, there's certainly some big Japanese guys. Uh, and I was more heavily muscled, and they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and there's, and most of the Japanese, this has been my experience in Japanese schools, whether it's judo, jujitsu, kendo, or otherwise. Spent some time way back in the day with the uh, Pancras guys and so on before MMA really came to the U.S. Is generally speaking, everyone's pretty cool. I I suppose this is true in the U.S. too. Then there are just one or two guys who are like, Mm -hmm. oh, foreigner in my school. Okay, I want to ring your bell. And uh, there was one guy there who wanted wanted to fight. And I was like, okay. Because I figured like my reflexes are pretty good. But the reflexes of head movement in kendo bad idea you always want to have the sword in between uh you and your opponent and to protect the center line so if you start moving your head or your shoulders in such a way that you might say evade a punch you really expose yourself so i ended up getting whacked not just on the top of the head but behind the armor because your back is open and the back of your head is open and so i ended up getting whacked like on the upper traps and neck with these shinai these bamboo swords which hurt. Uh, those those absolutely will ring your bell. So yeah, you feel it. You're familiar with the Dog Brothers, right? I am. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Those they, they bring it. <laughs> they really bring it. Yeah. They're, they're awesome. I have nothing but respect for the Dog Brothers. If you don't know what they are, you can check them out on YouTube. But they do full contact simulated knife and stick. And I think it started with stick fighting. Started with stick. Yeah. Started with a screamer. And then my understanding is they have the gathering. I, haven't seen, I was watching these videos at the same time I was watching the Gracie in Action yeah. <laughs> videos. Yeah. And I remember like, oh, people were just learning what a triangle choke was. It's was like, ooh, yeah. a tri- I can choke people with my legs. That was a new thing. <laughs> yeah. And I remember seeing this video of, I think it was the gathering where you have Salty Dog and so on. And the participants who come just have to mutually agree on which weapons are acceptable. So you'd have like right. one guy with a garden hose yep. and then another guy with like... A kendo sword with like the tip cut off, so yeah. it's splayed open, and then they would go at it. And I remember at this one point, I saw this guy pull guard. You know, the, like, people are just going nuts. Some people have lacrosse helmets on. I mean, it's like it's yeah. just yeah. bonkers, Mad Max. And these two guys are going at it, and uh, one's clearly a wrestler. He takes the guy down and gets caught in a triangle. And I'm like, oh, well, I guess that's it. And he's like, no, that's not it. And the guy took his, his Eskrima stick and took the end of it and just shoved it right in between the guy's ass cheeks. <laughs> Great way to break the triangle, turns yeah. out. <laughs> and then just and then just proceeded to beat the living shit out of him with a stick on the ground. That's not fun. <laughs> I don't like that triangle tap, defense tap, at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't like that at all. Um, I think we're getting into another... 
just just good. He's he's about to meet up with these more more of these Hozoin guys for some battle. All the priests carried lances, black sleeves tucked up. They were ready for action, apparently set upon avenging the death of Agon and restoring the temple's honor. They looked grotesque like so many demons from hell. The Ronin formed a semicircle so they could watch the show and at the same time keep Musashi from escaping. The, this precaution, however, proved unnecessary. Fumusashi showed no signs of either running or backing down. In fact, he was walking steadily and directly toward them. Slowly, pace by pace, he advanced, looking as if he might pounce at any moment. For a moment, there was an ominous silence as both sides contemplated approaching death. Musashi's face, face went deadly white, and through his eyes stared the eyes of the god of vengeance, glittering with venom. He was selecting his prey. Neither the ronin nor the priests were as tense as Musashi. Their numbers gave them confidence, and their optimism was unshakable. Still, no one wanted to be attacked, wanted to be the first attacked. A priest at the end of the column of the lancers gave a signal, and without breaking formation, they rushed around to Musashi's right. Musashi, I am Inshun, shouted the same priest. I'm told you came while I was away, away and killed Agon, that you later publicly insulted the honor of the Hozoin, that you mocked us by having posters put up all over town. Is this true? No, shouted Musashi. If you're a priest, you should know better than to trust only what you see and hear. You should consider things with your mind and spirit. It was like pouring, pouring oil on the flames. Ignoring their leader, the priest began to shout, saying talk was cheap, it was time to fight. <laughs> they were enthusiastically seconded by the ronin who had grouped themselves in close formation to Musashi's left. Screaming, cursing, and waving their swords in the air, they egged the priests on into action. Musashi, convinced that the ronin were all mouth and no fight, suddenly turned to them and shouted, All right, which one of you wants to come forward? All but two or three fell back a pace, each sure that Musashi's evil eye was upon him. Two, the two or three brave ones stood ready, swords outstretched, in issuing the challenge. In the wink of an eye, Musashi was on, on one of them like a fighting cock. There was a sound of a popping cork, and the ground turned red. Then came a chilling noise, not a battle cry, not a curse, but a truly blood-curdling howl. Musashi's sword screeched back and forth through the air, a reverberation in its own body, in his own body telling him when he connected with human bone. Blood and brain spattered from his blade. Fingers and arms flew through the air. Most of the time, Musashi wasn't really conscious of what he was doing. He was in a sort of trance, a murderous dream in which body and soul were concentrated in this three-foot sword. Unconsciously, his whole life experience... The knowledge his father had beaten into him, what he had learned at the Segejara, the theories he had heard at the various schools of swordsmanship, the lessons taught to him by the mountains and trees, everything came into play in the rapid movements of his body. He became a disembodied whirlwind mowing down the herd of Ronin, who, by their stunned bewilderment, left themselves wide open to his sword. I'm trying to think of why these particular passages, but one of the things, you know, this disembodiment, which I talk about all the time, being able to be de detached from what's happening is so important as a person, as a leader and as a, you know, in martial arts, you have to do it too. If you're getting so wrapped up around 
the thought of what's happening, you you won't make good decisions. But this actually goes beyond it. This this is like getting in the zone. This is you know when you're not thinking anymore. And I always say in jujitsu, if you're if you're thinking about your next move, it's too late. The person's already doing something to you. But that idea of being disembodied and being detached and not thinking about what you're doing, but just doing it is is epic if you can do it. And uh, we were we were chatting a little bit, uh, Echo, you and I before we started recording about Marcelo Garcia mm-hmm. in New York. And I've spent some time with Mar- Marcelo and rolled with Marcelo. And I am not uh, by any stretch, uh, I would say, good at jiu-jitsu, but nonetheless had a chance to, to spend some time on the mat with him and a handful of other guys. Sweetest guy you, you could ever imagine for people who don't know the name. I suppose it's fair to say the Michael Jordan, Mike Tyson, Wayne Gretzky of jiu-jitsu wrapped mm-hmm. into one. He's, he's just... Uh, Kind of like uh, the the Kimura, after which the Kimura is named. So, who is a very famous judoka and also really good at jujitsu, who fought Helio Gracie. People in Japan used to say, "Before Kimura, no Kimura. After after Kimura, no Kimura." Like a non-recurring <laughs> phenomenon. And uh, Marcelo is, I mean, got to be close to that. I mean, he's he's really good. And one of the things that you observe with Marcelo and Josh Waitskin, who co-owns the school with him, was very close friend of mine and also considered a chess prodigy. He was the basis for searching for Bobby Fischer. He says that, you know, Marcelo's nickname is the, I think the king of the scramble, but he doesn't view it as a scramble. Uh, and what, uh, what Josh was telling me is that Marcelo can basically see a move in and movement in general in more frames per second. So where most people see position a transition that is kind of, undefined to position B, he sees 30 positions mm-hmm. between A and B. Mm-hmm. And you see that when, uh, if, if you if people want to really see some wild stuff, you can check out, just look up the Marcelo teen, which is his brand of guillotine, which is really, uh, it's, it's so technical for something that can be so sloppy mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. when people don't know what they're doing. It's so technical. And he can catch people in a guillotine from any conceivable position mm-hmm. that most people wouldn't even consider a position yeah i've seen him ha- i've seen him catch people in a guillotine people who weigh like 300 pounds and not fat 300 like big 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 people and then they try to come around his legs into say a north south position and he gets them to tap when they appear to have him in a north south position mm-hmm. uh, mm. but he seems to be able to access this same type of mind state at will yeah I mean, obviously it has to do with he's training all the time. I mean, all the time. And yeah, he's all the time. And he just has turned his mind off and his yeah. body's working without him. I bet yeah. you, I bet you, if you hooked up like brain scan and you see what he's th- thinking about, he's probably thinking about like chicken yeah. <laughs> for dinner or whatever. You know what I mean? Like his yeah. thoughts are just not there. Oh, and yeah. that's how I feel when I have good, when I do good jujitsu, I, I come off the mat and I don't, someone will say, Hey, what was that move you did on me? I'm like, I have no idea what I just did. You know, yeah. I just have no idea. We, I don't know what happened. Yeah. And, and sometimes if you're thinking about something, you, you might remember bits and pieces, but that's what he's talking about in that section is like, Hey, it's not even, you're not even there. It's, yeah. it's all the trainings there, the things you've been instructed, the practice that you've done, that's what's there. And that's, what's executing the, the movements. Yeah. It's a beautiful place to be. Whenever people talk, ask me about meditation, yeah. like, do you meditate? Jocko? I'm like, yeah, I do jujitsu. You know? Oh, I agree with I that. Yeah. I think yeah. the brain. Yeah, I mean it's it's just present state awareness, and not endlessly thinking about 
whatever it is that might occupy and distract you otherwise. Yeah, it, it gives you that. Actually, somebody asked me that the other day. Uh, I was doing an event, and a guy says, you know, how do you, how do you recharge your batteries? Like, it just seems like you're going hard all the time. How do you recharge your batteries? And my initial, I, I actually responded. I said, look, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't really recharge. I mean, I'm just going. And there's this, <laughs> and then as I thought about it, I said, actually, no, I'm wrong. I recharge all the time. I'm, solar, I, I'm solar powered. Yeah, I'm solar powered. <laughs> I, I move myself to get energized, right? I'm like the wind up watch or whatever. But no, the reality is, sure. is I recharge myself um, through physical activity. That's where I recharge myself is by surfing and jujitsu and working out. That's the recharge. So I, just to uh, build on that, because I think it's really important, people think of recharging as as physical rest but a lot if anyone has really gone through a very very stressful period in their lives whether that's the death of a loved one or a breakup anything that you obsessively think about you can not move for most of the day and feel like you've run five marathons so by getting out of your head and into your body say in jiu-jitsu or surfing you're taking a break from these loops yeah. that we can replay that are what drain the battery. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I, I, you know, again, luckily the guy asked me that question and I realized as I was answering it, you know, first I sounded like an arrogant jerk that was like, hey, I'm always on. You know, I don't need no recharge. No, that's not true. Actually, if I go days without training or without working out, I start to feel like crap. And I, and how do I recharge? I get home and I'm like, oh, there's my squat rack and it, or there's the mat and you can get on it and train. So yeah, that's totally true. Totally true. One quick story about Marcelo, which also makes me... You can tell Marcelo stories think, for the rest think, of the day. Think, think, think about Musashi. Is, uh, he's famous for being hard to find when he gets called to the mat, when it's his turn to compete, uh, even at a world championship level. And he is almost always found, because Josh has had to track him down a few times, asleep, mm -hmm. like in between the bleachers. And be like, Marcelo, Marcelo, you're up. And be like, oh, okay, cool. And he'll like get up and stretch and literally walk 50 feet, like seven seconds later onto the mat for the finals and the world championships yeah. and just turn it on and yeah. then destroy people. And that's cool too. And I, I don't know if I hit it in the book, but that's Musa one of Musashi's things is Musashi would show up late. He'd have duels and he'd show up hour late, 15 minutes late, 20 minutes late, and have that person getting all frustrated. <laughs> yeah, no, it's in, in, I mean, you, it's, I was thinking about this because I, I, I was, uh, I remember this about Musashi and I was trying to think of how to explain in a culture like Japan in that period, what showing up an hour late might equate to in the U S it, it would be like coming over to meet someone at their house shaking their hands, sitting down at the dinner table, then like getting up on the dinner table and taking a shit right on their plant. Like it's, it's like, and then asking them to clean it up because it smells bad. Like it would be, it would be that rude. So of course, and it also made me think of this book. I think it's called Winning Ugly. It's about tennis, but it relates to this form of psychological warfare. Right. And like taking too much time, like in between serves and making your opponent unnerved. So that even if they're technically superior, you can end up beating them. And so Musashi, it's it's the simplest trick in the book. But he would show up late, late, and these people lose their minds. Yeah. And uh, and then 
if they're like, oh, this guy always shows up late. And then he'd show up three hours early and scout the whole place out and then kill everybody. <laughs> uh, good. Um, this was an interesting piece. Here's another weapon, and he's working with this guy who designs weapons. And it's called the chain ball sickle. So it's like the sickle and then a chain and then a ball. Again, this is, reminds me of kung fu movies when I was a kid. But he's seeing this. And here, this guy's name is Bacon. B-A-I-K-E-N. Bacon. Bacon. Did you just chime in over there, Aqua Charles? Yeah. Why is that, bro? Because <laughs> I know. <laughs> but no, no, I'm letting you guys do your thing. It's good. good. You speak Japanese or something? You've been <laughs> holding out on me? A little bit, yeah. Oh, I, do like, I do like the idea of yeah. calling him Bacon, though. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, I might, if I have another kid, I might name him Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> no, in in Hawaii the pronunciation is uh, similar. very similar. Yeah. yeah. Biken. Biken. Biken insisted. You said you wanted to hear more about this chain ball sickle. I'll tell you everything I know, but let's have a few drinks while we're talking. When Iwa returned with the sake, Biken poured some into a heating jar, put it on the fire, and talked at great length about the chain ball sickle and ways to use it to advantage in actual combat. The best thing about it, he told Musashi, was that, unlike a sword, it gave the enemy no time to defend himself. Also, before attacking the enemy directly, it was possible to snatch his weapon away from him with the chain. A skillful throw of the chain, a sharp yank, and the enemy had no sword. Still seated, Bacon, dem- Bacon demonstrated a stance. You see, you hold the sickle in your left hand and the ball in your right. If the enemy comes at you, you take him with take him on with the blade, then hurl the ball at his face. That's one way. Changing positions, he went on. Now, in this case, when there's some space between you and the enemy, you take his weapon away with the chain. It doesn't make any difference what kind of weapon it is. A sword, lance, wooden staff, or whatever. Biken went on and on, telling Musashi about the ways of throwing the ball, about the ten or more oral traditions concerning the weapon, about how the chain was like a snake, about how it was possible by cleverly alternating movements of the chain and sickle to create optical illusions and cause the enemy's defense to work to his own detriment, about all the secret ways of using the weapon. Musashi was fascinated. When he heard talk like this, he listened with his whole body, eager to absorb every detail. The chain the sickle, two hands. As he listened, the seeds of other thoughts formed in his mind. The sword can be used with one hand, but a man has two hands. And that's where he gets this idea uh, for using two swords when he fights. And I'm sure you know more about that than me, so. Yeah, so he originated a style that has many different names uh i think uh there there are a few different i'm I'm probably going to get this incorrect but there's like nite nichi i think is one way to say it uh but the the form of having one long sword and then the equivalent of say i would imagine in the military of of uh like a sidearm like Mm -hmm. like a pistol so you have your primary and then you would have your whatever it might be you know uh, Glock 19 or whatever. And typically, Samurai would use their primary and then failing that, if it broke or if it w- if they were disarmed, then they would use their shorter sword. And he would 
in some cases, utilize both simultaneously, which is very, very highly, highly unusual and requires a completely different method of fighting because the grip on the sword is very, very particular. When you look at, say, a kendo sword and how it's positioned, uh, if you... Uh, if you have then two swords, it requires a completely different repertoire of technique. And I don't know, I don't recall offhand if they get into it in this book, but Musashi was also an expert in, in weaponry throwing. So there were instances, and I would have loved to have seen this, and I'm sure there's a video on YouTube of someone trying this, but he would routinely throw his shorter sword. And also later on, because he was, and I don't want to skip too far ahead, but he would also instruct in the use of shuriken, which are the throwing stars. Mm. So he was an expert at throwing weapons as well as wielding the sword. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a completely different school of training that some people still use in kendo. At the highest levels, I haven't seen it very much because I think there aren't as many teachers. Is that legal? It is legal, as far as I can tell. Yeah, there were people who I've seen demonstrate it, and you can find some video, not much, but a little bit of video, of using one short and one long. Uh, and it's, it, it's, they're not a degree of difference. They're different species right, altogether. Right. Yeah. That's weird. Sometimes when I'm rolling jujitsu and you get sweaty enough and slippery enough and it's it's a it's a little bit of a different sport yeah. <laughs> oh totally yeah. you know like it's like you are not going to be able to do this to me right now because i'm yeah. just too slippery and and same with gi and no gi and it's weird you know of course i always tell people like gi and no gi they're different but they're the same and and then it's, it goes one degree further because when you get just super slippery no gi it's it's about the difference between gi and no gi maybe not quite as much <laughs> yeah. but another marcello story yeah, <laughs> can't resist. So I trained with uh, Dave Camarillo for a period of time, who is one of my favorite human beings. I'm awesome. just a sweetheart of a guy and a uh, hell of a competitor <laughs> and also high-level judo. Yeah. And so when he competed in jiu-jitsu, most people were terrified of his stand-up and they would kick their hips back and then he would do a flying arm bar and routinely used flying arm bars on everyone. He's, yeah, he was a total beast competitor. Yeah, just beast. I, I was on the comp competition circuit around the same time as him and some of the other guys we were talking about earlier yeah. and they, yeah, they were killers. So Dave went to New York and trained with Marcelo for a period of time. And to me, I mean, Dave, he's a high level competitor. Like I've, I've never seen Dave thrown around or anything like that. And, uh, so he's telling me about his experience and he's friends with Marcelo, but the experience of, of rolling no gi. And I was like, Oh, well that makes, I suppose that makes sense. I've heard so much about Marcelo, but once you put on the gi, it was a different game. I assume because of all your experience with judo. And he's like, no, <laughs> it was even worse. <laughs> yeah. So. I find that with Dean, Dean uh, yeah. my buddy Dean, who is, you know, a world champion multiple times with no gi. And everyone thinks, oh, well, if you put the gi on, maybe you can neutralize some stuff. No, it's worse because you can't move yeah. at all. <laughs> and he and it's not like he doesn't know jujitsu with gi. He's savage. So if someone's really good, it gives them more control. Yeah. They already have control over you. And now they have even more control. Now over they you. have handles. Yeah, it's mm. not fun. Do <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got one you want to read? You know, yeah, I want to just, these are, these are things that I highlighted when I was really just coming into the professional world and felt like I needed to toughen myself on a number of different levels. 
And this is one that I highlighted. This is from fairly early in the book, which means it's like the end of a normal book, but <laughs> early in the book. And it's talking about a period of his traveling. And he says, or I should say it reads, he stopped along the way to look at several well-known temples. And at each of them, he bowed and said two prayers. One was, please protect my sister from harm. The other was, please test the lowly Musashi with hardship. Let him become the greatest swordsman in the land or let him die. (laughs) Please test the lowly Musashi with hardship. That's what he's praying for. And that's what you would think when you were getting into the professional world. You're like, all right, bring it. Because you were scared. You think you were scared about what was going to happen? I knew that I had relatively high pain tolerance and... uh, I could handle a lot of workload. So I was, I was preparing myself for several years of being lowest on the totem pole and suffering, but making up for a lack of experience by just absorbing more punishment yeah. in the form of just working work, longer hours, work hard, doing more, always doing more and uh, served me well at the time. <laughs> Got an idea for a book anyways, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then when I disintegrated and self-imploded, I had an idea for a book. Uh, yeah, there's... Uh, Go. This is another one. And uh, it's referring to, I believe, Musashi's writing. And it says, well, his writing has a certain childish quality, but there's an appealing, what can I say, directness about it. If I had a swordsman in mind, I would say it shows spiritual breadth. The boy may eventually be somebody. <laughs> I just like that. The childish directness. Yeah. Yeah, those good stuff. And again, that's that's what you were thinking about yourself. Like, hey, at that time, you were the young swordsman coming up in the business world. That's right. Having to make things happen. Um. There's a there's another fight scene here. I hate calling them fight scenes because I don't know. That sounds like a movie, a kung fu movie. Not that there's anything wrong with kung fu movies because some kung fu movies are awesome, but some of them are also cheesy. Sure. Uh, you're a movie professional there, Echo Charles. Yeah, I don't think you'd be called a scene if it's in a book. Okay. I don't know, though. I don't know. Is this, it not a scene if it's in a book? Yeah, it could be. It. We could view this. Scene. It reads like a screenplay. So yeah, if it, it were a screenplay, we could call it a beat or a scene. I think. Here's a here's a scene. After an inter- this is a fight with a guy named Denshinshiro. After an interval of two or three breaths, Denshinshiro shouted, "Musashi!" He was well aware that the man standing several feet above him was in a very advantageous position. Not only was he perfectly safe from the rear, but anyone trying to attack him, either from the right or left, would first have to climb up to his level. He was thus free to devote his entire attention to the enemy before him. So he's about to fight this guy. And as you said earlier, sometimes he shows up late, sometimes he shows up early. In this case, he showed up early and he got an elevated position. And so his enemy, Deshincharo, is sitting there looking, going, oh, this sucks. I'm below him. And he's protected from the back and left and right. And then Musashi says, are you ready? Musashi's question was calm but trenchant, falling like so much ice water on his opponent's feverish excitement. Densensharo now got his first good look at Musashi. So this is the bastard, he thought. His hatred was total. He resented the maiming of his brother. He was vexed at being compared with Musashi by the common people. 
and he had an ingrained contempt for what he regarded as a country upstart posing as a samurai. Who are you to ask, are you ready? It is well past the hour of nine. Did I say I'd be here exactly at nine? Don't make excuses. I've been waiting a long time. As you can see, I'm fully prepared. Now come down from there. He did not underestimate his opponent in the extent of daring, atta- daring to attack from his present position. In a minute, answered Musashi with a slight laugh. <laughs> there was a difference between Musashi's idea of preparation and his opponent's. Denson Shiro, though physically prepared, had only begun to pull himself together spiritually, whereas Musashi had started fighting long before he presented himself to his enemy. For him, the battle was now entering its second and central phase. At the Gion Shrine, he had seen the footprints in the snow, and at that moment, his fighting instinct had been aroused. Knowing that the shadow of the man following him was no longer there, he had boldly entered the gate and made a quick approach to the kitchen. Having wakened the priest, he struck up a conversation, subtly questioning the man as to what had been going on earlier in the evening. Disregarding the fact that he was a little late, he had, he had had some tea and warmed himself up. Then when he made his appearance, it was abrupt and from relative safety of the veranda. He had seized the initiative. So I guess I was wrong in this section. He, he doesn't show up late, but he, or he shows up late, but he like gets to an advantageous position without the other guy realizing it, which is just as cool. Did you find one? I've got so many. I, know, I mean, I but this one, this one, this one is good because it highlights how profound is maybe too strong a word, but, uh, deep. Some of the characters in the book are besides Musashi, because there are quite a few characters in here. And this is a teacher. This is an exchange between, as as far as I can tell, Kizaimon, who's one of the teachers or a a prospective teacher, and Musashi. And Musashi has brought a letter that he wants (laughs) Kizaimon to read, which is some type of request for instruction. And Kizaimon is ignoring both Musashi and the letter. And he says, but just please read the letter. I don't want to. Just please read the letter. No, I'm not going to read your letter. And then he says, please read the letter. I don't need to. And then Musashi says, what's the matter? Can't you read? Kazaimon snorted. And then Musashi says, well, if you can read, read it. And this is what he says. You're a tricky brat. The reason I said I don't need to read it is that I already know what it says. Musashi says, even so, wouldn't it be more polite to read it? And this is how the teacher responds. Student warriors swarm here like mosquitoes and maggots. If I took time to be polite to all of them, I wouldn't be able to do anything else. <laughs> and then he continues, I feel sorry for you, however, so I'll tell you what the letter says. All right. This piece right here oh, is just good. This is the, the continuation of the, that, that fight scene, which actually goes on for multiple pages. His technique is better than mine, Musashi thought candidly. He had the same feeling of inferiority at Koyugayu Castle when he had been encircled by four leading swordsmen of the Yagu school. It was always this way when he faced swordsmen of of the orthodox schools, for his own technique was without form or reason, nothing more really than a do or die method. Staring at Dechinchero, he saw that the style Yoshi, was Yoshika Kempo had created and spent his life had 
both simply simplicity and complexity was well ordered and systematic and was not to be overcome by brute strength or spirit alone. Musashi was cautious about making any unnecessary movements. His primitive tactics refused to come into play. To an extent, that surprised him. His arms rebelled against being extended. The best he could do was maintain a conservative defensive stance and wait. His eyes grew red, searching for an opening. He prayed to Hachiman for victory. And then they go through, and it's just dead silence. Snow accumulated on Musashi's hair. And then he kind of breaks him down mentally. Um, Desensharo's feet inched forward. At the tip of his sword, his willpower quivered toward the start of a movement. Two lives expired with two strokes of a single sword. First, Musashi attacked to his rear. So a guy had snuck up behind him. Musashi kills that guy and then kills. It's just another uh, <laughs> another great battle scene. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, the eyes... <clears throat> They talk about the eyes quite a bit in this book. And I'll come back to Kendo where you experience something that's very uncommon in Japanese culture, which is really intense direct eye contact. doesn't happen a whole lot in Japanese culture, even in the martial arts. In Judo, it's more of a relaxed gaze. And you might come out first and there's some yelling. So you'll hear that quite a bit. I don't know if non-Japanese do it, but in Japan when I was watching certain people compete or competing myself, and you hear people like, yeah, you know, they come out and after they bow, they'll let out a bit of a scream, but then it's, then it's down to business. And in Kendo, you hear a lot more vocalization and really intense eye contact. Are you trained to look at their eyes? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So in, where do you look in wrestling? Uh, in wrestling, and I, I should say, I mean, I was, I was a, a decent high school wrestler, had a good competitive record, but uh, I wouldn't consider myself anywhere like a D1 wrestler would just mop the floor with me. Right. Uh, but I would typically have kind of more of a soft, uh, like hips type okay. of. I mean, I'm always looking point. at people's chest in every yeah. sport. I'm looking kind of like navel and chest. I usually kind of watching the hips yeah. in wrestling. Yeah. But in Kempo, they teach you to look at the eyes. In Kendo. Oh, sorry. In yeah. Kendo, they teach you to look at the eyes. Yeah. And are you looking for like. To see what they're going to do. That's where you're going to see their movement. You know, there isn't any explicit instruction in why, uh, but you communicate a lot with your eyes. And uh, so you can tell if someone's intimidated. You can tell if someone's angry. You can tell. uh, You can also throw people off. So, for instance, I mean, you have mendo, kote, and all this stuff. You have the targets, right? And what I realized pretty quickly is that much like in, say, Muay Thai. So in Thai kickboxing, one of the oldest tricks in the book, which is really, really unpleasant if you happen to get caught with it, <laughs> is particularly since I, 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 well, I'll just say I got caught with it when I went to Japan because I wanted to also cross-train in striking. And so I went to a number of schools, including a place called Seido Kai Kang. And Kang is, is, it's at the end of like Kodo Kan, this, this Kan, whatever it is, that sort of place of practice, right? And... Uh, first time I sparred someone and in the karate schools in Japan, like Kyokushin and so on, they don't have head contact with the fists, but it's bare fisted. So you're punching each other in the chest and body and so on. And this guy was wailing on my legs. He was just like hitting me with these, these, uh, roundhouse kicks to the legs. And I'd never even seen leg kicks before. So I was punching him right in the chest, like just below his collarbone, right below his 
throat and then punching him in the stomach and he was kicking me in the legs. I was like, Hey bro, like I'll do this all day long. And so <laughs> punching the chest and I had to skip school the next day cause I couldn't <laughs> yeah. walk. But the trick in Muay Thai that you see a lot is like, look at the leg, low kick, look at the leg, low kick, look at the leg, low kick, look at the leg, low kick and still really, until it really starts to hook hurt. And then look at the leg head, head kick. <laughs> and you see a lot of people get knocked out that way. So in Kendo, you can do something very similar where uh, you're sort of telegraphing deliberately with your eyes and going for a certain target, you get parried. You do that four or five times and then you telegraph the same way and go for a different target. Uh, but yeah, the, the eye contact was, was, it's really, it's really intense. And if you watch Kendo on say YouTube and imagine what the eye contact is like, if their eyes are like wide open staring at each other, it adds another layer of flavor to the entire experience and mm. then you can read a passage like this and you're like oh god i can see it and it's opposite of jujitsu where you don't really look at the person yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like the little unwritten rule like don't no eye contact <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no gazing lovingly into someone's in fact, eyes when i only guard. do it like purposefully when i'm yeah. trying to really mess with someone you know i yeah. just look right at them like yeah. and shake my head very subtly <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you probably notice that they never really look at you unless you do it super deliberately like if you try to roll with someone when you roll with someone try like notice where they're looking it's almost like they're just blank yeah, yeah. Well, i try before. and be just blank yeah you know, just i mean that's a weird thing too it's with jujitsu you don't even have to use your eyes like yeah. i i used to notice i don't notice it so much anymore i used to notice if someone was in a good position on me i would actually close my eyes no. I started viewing it like I was not, it was, wasn't smart. Like I was doing it to relax myself. Yeah. Someone gets in a good position, I just like close my eyes. Cause you, they, you know where they are. They're freaking, yeah. you know, on your back or they're across the side. You know exactly where they are, but I would just close my eyes to kind of relax. I don't do it anymore because it seems like a bad idea, right? Why would you close your eyes? That, that's stupid. It burns a lot of energy though. I remember doing training with uh, Laird Hamilton, who's one of the, most famous big wave surfers of all time. Yeah. Uh, if anyone hasn't seen the documentary Riding Giants, oh my God, yeah. go see that. Yeah. The invention of toe and surfing, holy yeah. God. And he, Laird is a beast. I mean, he's one of the most incredible physical specimens I've ever seen. He's in his 50s and just wipes the floor with like first round draft picks routinely uh, in terms of workouts. And he likes to do a lot of underwater training with weights. Mm-hmm. And he's devised all of these original exercises. Like there's one called ammo boxes where you hold a dumbbell. He holds a 50 pound dumbbell to his chest and then swims across the surface of the pool or just slightly submerged with one arm uh, and then does all manner of different exercises. And his wife, Gabby, Gabby Reese, who's also a, a world-class athlete of her own, right? Said to me, relax your eyes because underwater when I'm holding like two, 50 pound dumbbells, understandably my eyes are bugging out of my head and she's like, you're burning too much energy. She's like, try relaxing your eyes. And I could hold my breath for another 10, 15 seconds just by relaxing my eyes. Mm. Uh, and just, just uh, another side note that's related and I think relates to a lot in this book also, not just jujitsu is in, uh, in tango, I'm making it a point to bring up tango every time we talk publicly. Oh, but, <laughs> not cool, not cool. And at this the, point, the, uh, <laughs> the, the best female dancers very frequently close their eyes mm. because if they try to read the male's movement in order to respond, it's already too late. Mm. If they try to do it visually, it's too late. 
And I think that with a lot of martial arts, certainly that in particular with grappling, I mean, your body is always yeah. going to sense it before your eyes can interpret it. Maybe that's why relate. I was doing it originally. Yeah. Much yeah. like the female tango dancer. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So I remember Greg had a drill where you'd start back to back and yeah. say, okay, you got to close your eyes. It's kind of trust. You got to close yeah. your eyes and then grapple. And I remember doing it and think, oh, it's not that much harder. It's like, as long as you're already no. connected with the yeah. guy, yeah. it's not that much harder. Yeah. So speaking of tango dancing and women, <laughs> here's, uh, he, he, again, Otsu is in and out of the book. And at this point, he is heading to a battle and the odds are against him. And Otsu wants to go in with him. And she actually wants to die if he dies. And so he's having a conversation with her. And here we go. Don't be a fool, Otsu. He suddenly blurted. There's no reason why you should die. The strength in his own voice and the depth of his feeling surprised even him. It is one thing for me to die fighting against the Yoshiokas. Not only is it right for a man who lives by the sword to die by the sword, I have a duty to remind those cowards of the way of the samurai. Your willingness to follow me to death is deeply touching, but what good would it do? No more than the pitiful death of an insect. Seeing her burst into tears, he regretted the brutality of his words. Now I understand how over the years I've lied to you, and I've lied to myself. I didn't intend to deceive you when we ran away from the bridge, from the village, or when I saw you at Hanada Bridge, but I did by pretending to be cold and indifferent. That wasn't the way I really felt. In a little while, I'll be dead. What I'm, trying, what I'm about to say is the truth. I love you, Otsu. I'd throw everything to the four winds and live out my life with you. If only, after a moment's pause, he continued in a more forceful vein, you must believe every word I say because I'll never have another chance to tell you this. I speak with neither pride nor pretense. There have been days when I couldn't concentrate for thinking about you, nights I couldn't sleep for dreaming of you, hot, passionate dreams. Otsu, dreams that nearly drove me mad. Often I've hugged my palate, pretending it was you. But even when I felt like that, if I took out my sword and looked at it, the madness evaporated and my blood cooled. Her face turned toward him, tearful but as radiant as the morning glory. She started to speak. Seeing the fervor in his eyes, her words caught in her throat and she looked again at the ground. The sword is my refuge. Anytime my passion threatens to overcome me, I force myself back into the world of swordsmanship. This is my fate, Otsu. I'm torn between love and self-discipline. I seem to be traveling on two paths at once, yet when the paths diverge, I invariably manage to keep myself on the right one. I know myself better than anyone does. I'm neither a genius nor a great man. He became silent again. Despite his desires to express his feelings honestly, his words seemed to be concealing the truth. His heart told him to be even more candid. That's the kind of man I am. What else can I say? I think of my sword and you disappear into some dark corner of my mind. No, disappear altogether, leaving no trace. At times like that, I'm happiest and most satisfied with my life. Do you understand? All this time you've suffered, you've risked your body and soul on a man who loves his sword more than he loves you. 
I'll die to vindicate my sword, but I wouldn't die for the love of a woman, not even you, as so much as I'd like to fall on my knees and beg forgiveness. I can't. Yeah. Another speech. Yeah. Another scene that most women would rather not go through. Yeah. And it's another, I, I, I again, I know I don't re- relate to every normal person at all in very little ways, but <laughs> like when I read that, I'm always like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and, and I've been married for 20 years to an awesome woman. And, uh, but yeah, when I hear that, I just think, yeah, that's how you do it. Right. Hey, look, every time I would start thinking about you, I just look at my rifle and be like, I'm good. I want to, I want to, I want to chime in with, with another one that is not chronologically. Yeah. Close sorry. To we're this. out. We're, oh, we're no, not, we're, we're out we're, of sync. Oh, it's okay. But I, so, I, the, the ones that I underline tend to be universally, I think universally epic. applicable in some ways. Yeah. So to the forward, this is a, <clears throat> apparently a, a discussion about some type of battle and they're going back and forth. Uh, <laughs> All right, so this is Musashi. Then what else can I do but challenge him? I realize, of course, that even if I do, he'll probably refuse to come out of retirement. So I'm challenging this whole castle to a battle instead. (laughs) A battle, chorus the four. Uh, And then, uh, here we go. So his his arms still held by Kizaimon and Debuchi. Musashi looked up at the sky. There was a flapping sound as an eagle flew towards them from the blackness enveloping Mount Kasagi. Like a giant shroud, its silhouette hid the stars from view before it glided noisily down to the roof of the rice storehouse. And then this is the part that I highlighted. To the four retainers, the word battle sounded so melodramatic as to be laughable, but to Musashi, it barely sufficed to express his concept of what was to come. <laughs> yes. Yes. This part. So, so Musashi's had this another clan, another group that he's been uh, battling with. And the, the senior guy in the family, the senior guy from the school died or isn't, yeah, he's died. And this 13 year old boy is now the senior guy in the family. His name is Genjiro. And he shows up. So he's challenges, again, he challenges all these people to a fight and he shows up and they show up and he gets there, it's by some tree. And of course it starts off Musashi you're late cried a horse voice. <laughs> cried a horse voice. He took a shit on my dinner table. Yeah. Many took encouragement from Musashi's decla- declaration that he was alone. Believing it was a trick, they started looking around for phantom seconds. A loud twang off to one side aloud was followed a split second later by the glint of Musashi's sword flashing through the air. Oh, someone had shot an arrow at him. The arrow aimed at his face broke, half falling behind his shoulder, the other half the other half near the tip of his lowered sword. Or rather, where his sword had just been. For Musashi was already on the move, his hair bristling like a lion's mane. He was bounding toward the shadowy form behind the spreading pine. Genjiro hugged the tree trunk, screaming, help, I'm scared. Gazimon jumped forward, howling as though the blow had struck him, but it was too late. Musashi's sword sliced a two-foot strip of bark off the trunk. It fell to the ground by Genjiro's blood-covered head. 
It was the act of a ferocious demon. Musashi, ignoring the others, had made straight for the boy. And it seemed he had had this in mind from the beginning. The assault was of a savagery beyond conception. Genjiro's death did not reduce the Yoshikas, Yoshioka's fighting capacity in the slightest. What had been nervous excitement rose to a level of murderous frenzy. And so that's how he kicks off the battle. There's a 13-year-old boy, and he goes right for him and cuts off his head. <laughs> so, um, and this is the first time he starts using uh, both swords. I think this is the first time. Onlookers who had a clear view of him covered their eyes in horror. This is as this battle continues. Most, more ghastly still was the sight of the dead and wounded left in his wake. As he continued his tactical retreat up the path, he reached a patch of open land where his pursuers surged forward in a mass attack. In a matter of seconds, four or five men had been cut down. They lay scattered over a wide area, moribund testimony to the speed with which Musashi struck and moved on. He seemed to be everywhere at once. But for all his agile shifts and dodges, Musashi clung to one basic strategy. He never attacked a group from the front or the side, always obliquely at an exposed corner. Whenever a battery of samurai approached him head on, he somehow contrived to shift like lightning to a corner of their formation from which he could confront only one or two of them at a time. In this way, he managed to keep them essentially in the same position. But eventually Musashi was bound to be worn down. Eventually, too, his opponents seemed to be seemed bound to find a way to thwart his method of attack. To do this, they would need to form themselves into two large forces before and behind him. Then he would be in the in even greater danger. It took all Musashi's resourcefulness to stop that from happening. At some point, Musashi drew his smaller sword and started to fight with both hands. While the large sword in his right hand was smeared with blood up to the hilt and the fist that held it, the small sword in his left hand was clean. And though it picked up a bit of flesh the first time it was used, it continued to sparkle, greedy for blood. Musashi himself was not fully aware that he had drawn it, even though he was wielding it with the same deftness as the larger sword. So he's just getting after it with two swords. And eventually, run, crowd cried a thousand voices. You fighting by yourself, run, run while you can. So he just crushes everyone. <laughs> <laughs> There's another weapon that I don't know if they talk about in this book that he was quite adept at using, as I understand it, before he began fighting with two swords. And uh, it goes by a number of different names. In English, sometimes it's called a jut or a jutty, J-U-T-T-E. In Japanese, it's jitte. Jitte means 10 hands, literally. And it was a baton, basically. If you could imagine, this will make sense in a moment. If you could imagine a half-inch thick iron rod that's about 18 inches long or 12 inches long that then has what looks like the clip of a say ballpoint pen uh, that is a little that is pulled away from that uh, rod so that you have a space in between this hook effectively mm -hmm. and the rod palace guards and so on would use these as the equivalent of a police badge because they were forbidden from having swords in certain quarters because they could be used to assassinate 
higher ranking officials and so on. And you could use that in combination with a sword to uh, effectively parry or catch the blade in between those two prongs. And then twist it away. And then twist it away or just use it to temporarily arrest the use of that blade and then pull your own long sword and cut someone down. And Musashi was very adept, as I understand it, at using the jitte before he started using two swords. Mm. You could also just use a jitte to like, club somebody to death. I mean, it's a big... <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure is exactly what it was used for. Now, as uh, the story progresses, you know, he matures and, and starts moving into a, a little bit of a different phase. And this is kind of where the first time he starts, he's, he's wounded and he's traveling. And eventually he lays up for the night. After they had said goodnight, Musashi went to his room where he lay awake in the dark, his eyes glistening. The way of the samurai. He concentrated on this concept as it applied to himself and to his sword. Suddenly he saw the truth. The techniques of a swordsman were not his goal. He sought the all-embracing way of the sword. The sword was to be far more than a simple weapon. It had to be an answer to life's questions. The way of Usugi Kenshin and Date Masunami was too narrowly military, too hidebound. It would be up to him to add to it its human aspect, to give it greater profundity, greater loftiness. For the first time, he asked whether it was possible for an insignificant human to become one with the universe. So he's starting to, uh, like I said, mature. Do you got one? Yeah, I have one which uh, I think is philosophically very similar and brings back one of the characters that you read about earlier. Uh, and uh, refers to a lesson that he learns from, or had learned from Takuan. And here's how it goes. It wasn't that he, that's Musashi, had forgotten the lesson Takuan had taught him. The truly, and that is, the truly brave man is one who loves life, cherishing it as a treasure that once forfeited can never be recovered. He well knew that to live was more than to merely survive. That's the one that I highlighted. The problem was how to imbue this life with meaning, how to ensure that his day would cast a bright ray of light into the future, even if it became necessary to give up that life for a cause. If, if he succeeded in doing this, the length of his life, 20 years or 70, made little difference. A lifetime was only an insignificant interval in the endless flow of time. Hmm. Yeah. I think I've heard you say that quote before, like I not just surviving. Living is not yeah. just surviving. That's kind of wild. Maybe this is where I, I got. Maybe this. Is I, I don't I think I've up. heard you say the quote, but I think I've heard yeah. you say that concept before. Yeah, I have, and maybe I mean this is where it incepted me twenty years ago. I was in Musashi. He ends up um, with a guy named Iori, who's sort of a student of his, and they're living in the mountains. And again, I think this is this is as. As they as he's starting to mature and grow in this area where he's going to where he is it's a mountainous area in japan and for those of you that haven't been in japan it's got some incredibly beautiful oh, beautiful mountains and incredible yeah beautiful even right outside of tokyo for people who are ever thinking of going 
there's a place called Nikko, which is N-I-K-K-O, and the O is long, but Nikko, and they have beautiful temples and mountains. And that is where I did the Japanese horseback archery. Mm. Just as a, as a side note on the Japanese horseback archery, it was so great. So there, there are not, as you would imagine, many schools for horseback archery. But one of, the, one of the families, one of the clans that still exists, the Ogasawara. So the Ogasawara is the family. And then Ryu, like R-Y-U, is the school. And that, that Ryu comes up a lot in Musashi's life if you look at the history. It's like such and such Ryu, such and such Ryu, like the, the school of whatever. And Ogasawara Ryu, uh, Japanese horseback archery, is what I ended up studying with one of the members of the Ogasawara family, and we did it in Nikko, which is a stunning place to train. And uh, f- just as a little, a little, little bit of context on what exactly this means. So the ceremonial version of Japanese horseback archery entails a straightaway that is marked off in in the in my case with. Uh, metal rods like rebar Mm -hmm. so you you effectively have these stakes in the ground that are about three feet high of rebar like every five feet two parallel lines running let's call it 300 or 500 feet and you get on a horse at the very beginning of this track and there are three targets laid out uh, equally distance over that 500 foot space Uh, the first one probably comes up at about 100 meters and they're about the size of a big dinner plate. <clears throat> and you're on the horse. The saddle is wood, so you don't sit on it. Uh, you do. You squat above it. And you have tabi on, which are these split socks. You don't have shoes on. In these uh, stirrups that actually do not enclose the foot uh, around the foot. They don't encircle the foot. They, you stick it in kind of like a slipper. And you have a really wide stance and then you have a bow, which is about six feet long, in my case, in my left hand. And you, you, the bottom of the bow, you keep inside your thigh. And then you have arrows that are stuck into your belt on your lower back. And your first arrow is knocked. And then you pull the line slightly and lock it down with your index finger so that there's tension on it. And then you have the reins. And you, you take off at a full gallop. And then you throw the reins down and you fly with you gallop with no control of the horse. And these rebar that are set every five feet keep the horse galloping in a straight direction. And you fire the first arrow at the first target, and then you have to reload your arrow by reaching to your back, pulling the arrow out. And there's a really technical, somewhat complicated way of knocking the arrow very, very quickly while you're riding a horse. And then you intend to hit the next two targets. Uh, while you're yelling, there are certain things you're supposed to yell as you shoot at your target, and uh, it's it's an incredible, incredible demonstration. And they do this at the temples in Nikko, which to me is what comes to mind in terms of imagery when we're talking about his experience in these mountainous regions. And uh, yeah, lesson number one, or you do not want to fall off and people do fall off because if you fall off your horse, you get trampled by the horse and you hit the rebar. (laughs) Uh, But uh, the the reason I brought this up is that uh, everyone has seen restaurants say that say established 1946, established 1987, established whatever. And the son 
pretty young guy in his mid thirties, really strong. The bow I shot had maybe like a 60 pound or 65 pound tension, which is surprisingly difficult for people who have not done much archery to hold that at full extension for a period of time. Uh, especially on a horse, it's like 65 is, is 70 pounds is, is, is quite legit on a, a long bow or a recurve bow. And he was pulling a bow that was 120 pounds, like nothing. And his jacket, he had what, what might look like uh, sort of a shiny, like 1980s, like breakdancing jacket is kind of what it looked like with like the, the, like the elastic tube portions on the wrists. And on the back, it said, Ogasawara Yabusame, established 1157. (laughs) I was just like... Yeah, this goes back away. Did you hit the targets? At the very end, I did. Yeah, you got them. That because you know shooting from vehicles is really is is really hard. Shooting yeah. guns from vehicles. I mean, it's just yeah. hard. I can't. I can't even imagine trying to do a bow and arrow on horseback <laughs> on a wooden saddle. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a different thing. Uh, I was very surprised that I actually ended up hitting the targets, but uh, yeah, at the very end. How long did you train it for? <sighs> Another thing I would not recommend, uh, I, I crammed it into a week. I had a week, I had a week to train. And Did you know how to ride a horse before? I had some experience on a horse, uh, but Western and Western style for people who don't know, if you think rodeo, uh, where you're, you're, you're effectively seated in the saddle. It's kind of like the Harley Davidson of, of horse riding. <laughs> like your feet are out in front of you or you hear your heels are dropped. You don't post. And uh, Japanese is somewhere between it's, it's, it's closer to English where you'd be, uh, more elevated and, uh, the position is very, very different. You're, you're effectively in almost a sumo stance. Like you're, you're very much abducted. Like your, your groin is very, very open. So I was extremely sorry. I felt like I was doing like suspended squat practice for hours every day. So after a few days of that, uh, pretty uncomfortable. And we lost three days, I want to say to rain when we, we couldn't, it was too dangerous for the, the horses and the humans to train doing anything, uh, in those conditions. So we had about four, I'd say four days of real training. So speaking of rain, yeah. they're up there. Uh, Musashi and Iori are up there and well, here we're going to the book. As autumn waned, the insect voices faded into silence. Leaves withered and fell. Musashi and Iori finished their cabin, because they built a cabin, and addressed themselves to the task of making the land ready for planting. One day while surveying the land, Musashi suddenly found himself thinking it was like a diagram of the social unrest that had lasted for a century after the Onin War. Such thoughts aside, it was not an encouraging picture. Unknown to Musashi, Hatu, Hat, Hoten Gahara, had over the centuries been buried many times by volcanic ash from Mount Fuji, and the Tone River had repeatedly flooded the flatlands. Whenever, when the weather was fair and the land bone dry, but whenever there was heavy rains, the water carved out new channels, carrying great quantities of dirt and rock along with it. There was no principal stream into which smaller ones flowed naturally. The nearest thing to this being a wide basin that locked sufficiently sufficient capacity or sorry lacked sufficient capacity to either water or drain the area as a whole. The most urgent need was obvious to bring the water under control. So he's got this big piece of land 
and he thinks, okay, I'm going to turn this into a farm. He doesn't really know that there's no pathway for the streams when the water comes down out of the mountains and when it rains. He doesn't know that there's nowhere for it to go. It doesn't make sense to the water, so it just kind of floods everything. Um, Still, the more he looked, the more he had questioned why the area was undeveloped. It won't be easy, he thought, excited by the challenge posed. Joining the water and earth to create productive fields was not much different than leading men and women in such a way that civilization might bloom. To Musashi, it seemed that his goal was in complete agreement with his ideals of swordsmanship. He had come to see the way of the sword in a new light. A year or two earlier, he had wanted only to conquer all rivals. But now the idea that the sword existed for the purpose of giving him power over other people was unsatisfying. To cut people down, to triumph over them, to display the limits of one's strength seemed increasingly vain. He wanted to conquer himself, to make life itself submit to him, to cause people to live rather than die. The way of the sword should not be used merely for his own perfection. It should be a source of strength for governing governing people and leading them to peace and happiness. He realized his grand ideals were no more than dreams and would remain so as long as he lacked the political authority to implement them. But here in this wasteland, he needed neither rank nor power. He plunged into the struggle with joy and enthusiasm. Day in and day out, stumps were uprooted, gravel sifted, land level, soil and rocks made into dikes. Musashi and Iori worked from before dawn until after the stars were shining bright in the sky. Now, as he's doing this, the villagers keep coming by and they say, what do they think they're doing? And how do they think they can live in the place like that? And you're wasting your time. That's what all the villagers are saying to him. They've seen this for, you know, since 1100 or whatever, they've seen this place get flooded and he keeps going. He keeps, you know, trying. And every time he makes some progress, he... The, or it'll rain and everything gets washed away or it'll get flooded and then he thinks he's doing okay and it's a big snow in the mountain so everything survives but then it thaws and every, all the water comes down again so he goes on he keeps working the land he keeps trying to make it work back to the book musashi carried on in his stubborn struggle throughout the winter into the second month of the new year It took several weeks of strenuous labor to dig ditches drain the water off pile dirt for a dike and then cover it with heavy rocks Three weeks later, everything was again washed away. Look, Iori said, we're wasting our energy on something impossible. Is that the way of the sword? The question struck close to the bone, but Musashi would not give in. Only a month passed before the next disaster, a heavy snowfall followed by a quick thaw. Iori, on his return trips from the temple for food, inevitably wore a long face, for the people there rode him mercilessly about Musashi's failure. And finally, Musashi himself began to lose heart. For two full days and on into a third, he sat silently brooding and staring at his field. Then it dawned on him suddenly. Unconsciously, he had been trying to create a neat square field like those common in other parts of the plain. But this was not what the terrain called for. Here, despite the general flatness, there were slight variations in the lay of the land and the quality of the soil that argued for an irregular shape. What a fool I've been, he exclaimed aloud. I tried to make the water flow where I thought it should and force the dirt to stay where I thought it ought to be. 
but it didn't work. How could it? Water's water. Dirt's dirt. I can't change nature. What I've got to do is learn to be a servant to the water and a protector of the land. In his own way, he had submitted to the attitude of the peasants. On that day, he became nature's manservant. He ceased trying to impose his will on nature and let nature lead the way, while at the same time seeking out possibilities beyond the grasp of other inhabitants of the plain. The snow came again, and another thaw. The muddy water oozed slowly over the plain, but Musashi had had time to work out his new approach, and his field remained intact. The same rules must apply to governing people, he said to himself. In his notebook, he wrote, do not attempt to oppose the way of the universe, but first make sure you know the way of the universe. As I was uh, telling one of my SEAL buddies about this, we were talking about that you can't, you can't, as a leader, a lot of times people want to change people. You want to change them and, and you, you just, you can't change people, right? I mean, you can shift them and they can change themselves. But when you try and impose change on someone, you try and make someone what you want them to be, it, it's very difficult to do, if not impossible. I was talking about this one, had a guy in a SEAL platoon, and he had potential, right? But he had some flaws. You know, he was a loud mouth and that kind of thing, and, and just wanted like to bring him along and tried everything. Beatings, um, counselings, um, you know, befriending, um, more beatings. Did everything, <laughs> and and you know he would like make slight adjustments for a little while, and then he'd go back to just being the way he was. And eventually, I said, okay, well, we have to. That's the way he is. That's the way this person is. And you know, how do we work with him so he's working within an, uh, the confines of things that he can do and do them acceptably. But I think people get caught on the idea that they're going to change people, and it's really hard. And you see this especially with people getting involved in relationships with people that they think they're going to be able to change, and you're not going to be able to do it. I have a question for you, Jago. In, in your own life experience, how do you separate the way of the universe meaning in you personally the things that are just you that you shouldn't try to change versus the things that you should try to improve because i think that there there's the temptation for a lot of people to say well that's just the way i am but it's it absolves them of the responsibility to of doing the work i i got asked a similar question and it'll tie into it but i got asked by um i was working with a company the other day and a guy asked you know if i've got a guy that's really good at something but a person that's not really good, should I, should I just give up on trying to get the person that's not good at that job, give up on them and just let the person that's good at it do it? And I said, well, yes and no. I mean, if we have somebody that is a really good shot, like he's a sniper, but we got a guy that's not a good shot. Okay, so we're gonna give the sniper all the good missions and he's gonna go do all the tough shots. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That doesn't mean we just let the other guy never learn how to shoot. No, we actually continue to train him and make him better. And I think it's the same thing with your, your, your individual self, right? If I've got weaknesses, I don't just say, well, I'm just going to avoid being in those areas where I'm weak. I'm going to actually go and try and get better at them. Now, I'm not going to make that the focus of my life, right? I'm not going to try and become a ballerina. 
<laughs> right? Would I like to be more flexible? Absolutely. Do I need to work on that? Absolutely. But I'm not trying to become a ballerina. I wouldn't focus on that because it would be a significant waste of my time and of my entire life in a very <laughs> fruitless situation. But that doesn't mean I shouldn't try and be more flexible, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think you 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 still apply some time to to try and improve it, but you don't waste, you know, you don't waste valuable energy. You'd still look at what you're good at and say, you know, I'm better at at doing jujitsu. I'm better at whatever. Can I tell you uh, one of the thoughts that for whatever reason consumed my mind for about uh, an hour and a half during my silent meditation retreat? (laughs) I was thinking about Giraffes Can't Dance, this book, this, this demon slayer that crushes me on Amazon always by like five spots when I launch a book and I started thinking about how incredible it would be to take Jocko the cartoon character uh, as seen in the Jocko approved logo (laughs) on your tee and to have a parody of that book called Jocko can't dance (laughs) with like thought bubbles of what you're thinking throughout the book in any case, for whatever reason, that is what my mind decided to settle on. And uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so confession over. Confession. Complete. So do you find that yourself that you say like, oh, I'm not good at this, or I'm going to avoid it, or do you find yourself getting focused? Because you know you're talking about what Musashi's what what they described Musashi doing as earlier, which is I only worry about things that are beating me, right? I only worry about the opponent that beat me. Just like the only book you think about is this book, Giraffes Can't Dance, which is the one book that beats you because, and that's what you're focused on. You don't worry about these other books that you kick the crap out of. I also just like talking about it because I love the fact that it's called Giraffes Can't Dance. Yeah, and it kicks your ass, yeah. Do you think you get focused on things that are that you shouldn't be focused on? Or that you're wasting time on? Uh, I, I, you kind of know what you're good at. I, I do. Uh, I think that I've become better at working on or distinguishing between low-level weaknesses and high-level weaknesses. And what I mean by that is if you imagine, say, a uh, people have seen like a champagne pyramid <laughs> where sometimes built at weddings where you, you stack up mm-hmm. all these champagne glasses and you pour into one or it could be any type of glass, and it cascades down into the others. Uh, or you could think of it through a domino analogy. I, I, I use this analogy a lot, looking at lead dominoes. Like, what can I do if I have a task list? Let's say, which of these five tasks will make all of the others easier or irrelevant? And that'll help me sequence things in the right order so that I'm not wasting energy. Uh, if I have 10 units of energy, I'd rather focus on identifying, at least to begin with, the lead dominoes. And so a high-level weakness would be a, a lead domino, something that has downstream negative effects on many different areas, even uh, that can compromise your strengths, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so for me, for instance, I think uh, for a very long time, I viewed... Uh, I only viewed impatience through the the lens of the benefits of aggression because having a good offense has always been my model ever since I became uh, fascinated by you know Dan Gable, who is about as close to 100% offense, legendary mm-hmm. wrestling uh, competitor and coach. Uh, 
Uh, man, I have a lot of stories about Dan Gable. Uh, incredible, incredible guy. But uh, I, what I've realized in the last few years, for instance, is that there are low-level weaknesses. Let's say I am not a programmer. Uh, I am not good at A, B, C, D, or E skill that is more of a, a technician's craft. Mm-hmm. I will not spend time on those things if I can delegate it or right. outsource it. But if there are core psychological traits that are higher order that can negatively impact other things, then I've realized uh, for the long haul, uh, I do want to at least experiment with developing those capacities. What I think has helped me a lot is I'm always, and I was, when I was in the SEAL teams, I was always looking at other people. I was always looking at their leadership. I was looking at what they're doing. I was looking at why they weren't getting along. I was looking at what was wrong with the platoon. And as I would sit there and watch these people, I would learn from them because, and I'd say, you know, I'd see two people that didn't get along and I'd say, why, why don't, why can't these guys get along? What's wrong with them? And I'd watch them and I'd see that, you know, this one guy has a giant ego. Oh, and so is the other guy. And instead of one of them disarming the other guy's ego they they both can't figure that out and so they're just battling and it's you know you got that in, inside of a seal platoon it's a horrible thing and and so as i'd watch them it allowed me that then i could see to myself where i i would see oh i like if i've got frustrated with someone i'd say or i'd get i'd have a negative thought about someone i'd think why do i have that negative thought about that person that's actually a badass or it seems like a, a really strong personality or a strong presence right why do i have that oh i have that because that's my ego and it's the same thing with when i see people getting excited um i don't think excitement is usually a positive thing i mean it's not it's not a negative thing but sometimes people in a meeting someone just immediately has an opinion and and i think and I watched their their opinion fall apart because they didn't listen long enough. They didn't assess things long enough. And so I, I hear them state their opinion and they state it with vigor and with with conviction. And then you listen to it and all of a sudden they, they, they can't help but look bad because what they initially thought was wrong. And I probably had the same thoughts as I said, but I kept my mouth shut and I listened. And, and so I'd see people do that. And I'd say, you know what, when you're in a meeting and there's people talking about things, you don't need to say anything. You don't need to appear stupid or whatever. Is it better to appear stupid than open your mouth and remove all doubt, right? Yeah. This is just, but I would learn these things about people, which I think were, were helpful to me just by watching and, and seeing people and being really a, really kind of a jerk in my own mind. Like I, I, I watch people like a jerk, like why would you do that? What's wrong with you? Very accusatory tone in my own head. But then it was really easy for me to flip that back on myself all the time and say, well, wait a second, you do that too. Wait a second, you make that same mistake. So I think that from a psychological perspective, yeah. I think what's given me um, a good perspective of my own psychology is watching other people intently and closely with the, with the goal of actually helping them correct that, of going up to the guy and say, hey man, this is your ego versus that guy's ego. And you're either gonna, one of you is gonna have to disarm the other one or your guys are never going to get along and this is never going to move forward. And and so I think that really helped me out a lot. I'm sure it did. And I uh, have found certainly that there are many benefits in my case of being a solo practitioner, so to speak, uh, being uh, unemployed slash self-employed for decades now. But the one of the clear downsides is that I don't have that in-person peer group to observe 
or superiors or subordinates to observe it, it, with the rare exception of a handful of employees now. But the what I ended up doing for myself to try to improve because I didn't have, I assumed, and I think this is good for a lot of people to assume that you, you may not have sufficient self-awareness to accurately self-diagnose your weaknesses and strengths. So I would seek out environments that made it very obvious. And the way I did that, and I think Musashi, in a way, alludes to this, uh, is if you, say, are on the battlefield, in Musashi's case, your strengths and weaknesses, or at least your weaknesses, tend to become clearer or magnified. So if I could put myself into a really intense training environment like AKA in San Jose, a lot of professionals there uh, at the time, Cain Velasquez and a number of others, and training with Dave and a handful of other folks, I could watch my response to increasing levels of stress. Like how did I respond to extreme heat? What was the self-talk when I wanted to quit? Did I... Uh, at what point was I inclined to try to find someone easy to roll with? Like how many rounds did it take? Right. Was it? And, uh, and then could I, then I, I would note that and I would actually take notes. I bring my notebook as you can see, I have notebooks everywhere here and I would note the, not just the technical learnings and what I wanted to improve, but the, the, the decisions and the self-talk that I made that I wanted to improve upon and experiment with that. So I used, the physical arena as a way to try to identify the high level weaknesses that I could work on because uh, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? So it's, it's all great and theoretically, academically beautiful to sit down and try to self-analyze when you're journaling in the morning, which I also do, but it's quite another thing to be like, okay, tough guy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's even with, the, with, with that long explanation I just gave at looking at all these people, I didn't, I wasn't consciously thinking, actually, I wasn't even consciously thinking about it from a psychological perspective. I was just thinking it from a pragmatic, here's two guys, why don't they get along? Yep. And then when I would see myself do it, I'd go, oh, you're, you're like, you're doing the same stupid stuff. It wasn't like this, um, you know, this idea of I was looking at myself and try, I was just doing what I had to do, right? Yeah. I guess there's always the the subconscious uh, feeling of like trying to do better and trying to self-improve, but I'm not a person that has the the constant like, um, I'm trying to self-improve. I think it's just, a, it's just a natural thing. Like, yeah, I'm trying to get better, of course, but that's not, I don't think about it. That's, I guess that's my yeah. point. I, I don't think about it. I'm not focused on it. I'm just doing it. I'm just doing it and living it. Yeah, well, I think in, in your case, and uh, I, I have, well, we have some mutual friends, I mean, from the SEALs, but also uh, Force Recon and uh, a number of, of friends who have... Uh, been engaged at very high levels in elite ranks within the military. And I think that in my experience thus far, uh, most of them have, whether it's by virtue of the filtering that their careers impose on mm -hmm. them, right? I mean, you have a thousand people start at step one, how many make it to step a hundred, mm -hmm. uh, that they, they self-select and are selected to have a high degree of what I would consider or what you could consider mindfulness, which is usually associated with like hippies in San Francisco with didgeridoos and 
Burning Man and so on. It's, it's a buzzword there, but I think the ability to detach mm-hmm. in that way comes naturally to you and to many people I know who also have made it to step 100. They yeah. just seem in a military context. If you don't have that, you, and certainly you can get killed or get washed out for many different reasons. But I think if for one of them seems to be, if you have no self-awareness, you just, you get broken or you get disqualified at some point. Yeah. In those or, steps. or, or you, you get as good as the machine can make you. And I think yeah. that's, that's the real difference. You get as good as the machine. The machine's going to make you good. Right. right. But you, the only person that can take you past what the machine can make is you. Right. And so if you're not self-aware, if you can't, if you can't figure that out, if you can't look in the mirror and see, see like things that you can correct, then you're, you're just going to be what the machine made you, which is a high quality item. I mean, you know, the military is filled with some high quality guys, great guys, fabulous guys that perform outstanding. But then there's like this one more little level of guys that are, you, you look at them and you go, man, that guy's really good. Well, why is that? That's because that guy, the machine got him to here and he's looking at himself going, what can I do better? He's got that detachment and that's definitely, definitely important. I got to introduce somebody in this book now um, that there's, his name is Sasaki Kojiro Ganru. I'd have to see the last part. Yeah, you got the first G-A-N-R-Y-U. Ganryu, yeah, that's Ganryu. Hard, that gets me hard to say. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not, I guess I'm gonna go with what I'm going with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this guy, and he dances in and out throughout the book, but yeah. this is Musashi's uh, arch rival, the okay. other swordsman that's got this incredible reputation, only he's been a little bit more, he stays on the scene more. Musashi's going and trying to farm and doing other things, and this guy's kind of on the scene. And there's there's one part where these elderly gentlemen are talking about who is truly the best swordsman slash samurai in Japan. And here we go to the book. As he compared the two, he had to admit that the most daimyo, am I saying that right, daimyo? Daimyo. Daimyo would prefer Kojiro. He came from a good family and he had studied the art of war thoroughly. Despite his youth, he had developed a formidable style of his own and he gained considerable fame as a fighter. The story of his brilliant defeat of men from the Obata Academy on the banks of the Sumida River and again at the dike on the Kanda River was already well known. Nothing had been heard from Musashi for some time. His victory at Ichijoji had made his reputation, but that had been years ago. And soon afterward had spread the story that the story was exaggerated. That Musashi was a seeker of after fame who had trumped up the fight, made a flashy attack, and then fled to Mount He. Every time Musashi did something praiseworthy, a spate of rumors followed, denigrating his character and ability. It had reached the point where even the mention of his name usually met with critical remarks. Or, or else people ignored him entirely. As the son of a nameless warrior in the mountains of Mimasaka, his lineage was insignificant. So he kind of faded. And he does some dumb stuff too, right? Like he does dumb things. Like he's a young, he didn't come from the, from the, the ranks that, of people that were counseling him and keeping him in line. So he did dumb stuff like have battles against whole castles and <laughs> attack people. I mean, he was kind of crazy, yeah. right? And so his reputation, and then of course, you know, this is like uh, 
I guess, ancient social media, right? There was rumors and they would post signs about people and they would do these things to denigrate people's reputations and such. And they had done that considerably to Masashi. Yeah, I was just thinking about how labor intensive it would be. (laughs) You're talking about spreading posters, like to hand create piles of posters that you would then go post to denigrate someone. Like the equivalent of a tweet was like sitting down for a week and hand making posters to put around town. And they do it in this book. They do it multiple times. They go on both sides. People write sign. Musashi does it. The other people do it. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. We're getting, we're getting closer, closer. Musashi's wandering in the mountains and here we go back to the book. At times he was so tortured with his sword It seemed like a weapon that turned against him. Among the possibilities he considered was choosing the easy way. If he could bring himself to live in a comfortable, ordinary way with Otsu, life would be simple. Almost any fife would be willing to pay him enough to live on, perhaps 500 to 1,000 bushels. But when he put it it to himself in the form of a question, the answer was always no. An easy existence imposed restrictions. He could not submit to them. So he's get he's got the idea. You know, I could just marry Otsu, get a good job, make a hundred k a year. We'll call it good. He doesn't like that though. Does not like it. The easy path has restrictions. It is the discipline that provides freedom, apparently, for Musashi. <laughs> well, just uh, as a contemporary example, uh, one of my uh, I would consider him a teacher. He's certainly become a friend, but. A political, originally, at least when he came to the U.S., a Polish political refugee named Jerzy Gregorik. He's now in his 60s, lives in Woodside, California, and he's a world champion uh, and world record holder in Olympic weightlifting, yeah. as is his wife. He, 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 that was a good podcast, by the way. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's, he's awesome. He's so salty. And to give people a little bit of background, the first time I met him, I was just... Uh, at the time, suffering from a malaise and a general fatigue with the uh, hypersensitivity of the Bay Area. Uh-huh. And I walked in to meet him for the first time to get an assessment. And we sat down and we drank Marco Polo black tea. It's the only tea that he drinks. And we're, he's like, have a seat. So I sit down and we're talking. He's asking me about my goals, about my athletic background, past injuries. And he's sitting across from me. He's, he's in great shape. He's in his 60s. He, I, he can still do, well, what, as an example, I've seen him on an Indo board. Mm-hmm. If you know what those are. It's mm-hmm. a balance board. It's like a wobble board on top of a cylinder with a loaded barbell. He's holding a loaded barbell in a position like a hand clean mm-hmm. on an Indo board. Uh, he's in his 60s, throw it up, you know, like 150, 200 pounds and land in a full ass to heels snatch on an Indo bar. (laughs) That is legit. And uh, so he reached across sipping tea and then he he stopped mid mid thought and reached across and sort of pinched my right tit and just said, you are too fat. (laughs) So I just love this guy. Like after that, I was like, yes, we are going to work together. But his one of his mantras that he uses for everything is easy choices, hard life, hard choices, easy life. Yeah. Discipline equals freedom for sure. That's awesome. That is awesome. Did you like get on the program with him? 
I did for quite a period of time. Yeah. And were you were you traveling down? I mean, how did you do? Were you following instruction, or was he personally coaching you? I or? traveled down regularly and uh, made excellent progress. It's very to do Olympic weightlifting the way that Jersey would want you to do it, uh, and which is the way I would want to do it. You really need hands-on mm-hmm. instruction. It's mm-hmm. highly, highly, highly technical, and uh, also you need a logical progression because most people who just want to do a weekend course and figure out the snatch, they do not have any of the ankle or shoulder mobility, thoracic spine mobility to even perform the right movement. It, regardless of who the instructor is, they could have a 500-time world champion teaching them and doing video recording. But if they don't have the mobility, they're just going to hurt themselves. So I went down regularly, and then uh, when I was traveling, would send him video, mm-hmm. and he would reply with video commentary. Uh, great experience. I mean, I, st- I still think the Jersey-style, relatively narrow stance, ass to the grass, uh, overhead squat, one of the best movements. What? How wide is his grip when he does that? It's a snatch grip, so okay. it'd be a wider so wide, grip. Yeah. Wider grip. Uh, but he can, there are videos of Jersey, people can look him up, J-E-R-Z-Y, Gregorek, G-R-E-G-O-R-E-K. Uh, there are videos, of, he is one of the most flexible, mobile humans I've ever seen. He's strong as an yeah. ox, but he can, with his feet together, uh, holding a, say, 35-pound plate overhead with his hands flat underneath it, like he's holding a dinner platter, go down into a perfect squat with his chest up ass to his heels holding that overhead with his yeah. fingers basically touching yeah which people might say oh i could do that trust me you can't <laughs> like <laughs> like trust me you cannot do it <laughs> that's that's awesome so we're getting to towards the end here this again this um rivalry is brewing and finally there is a speaking of social media there is a command issued by the castle and here's what it says on the 13th day of this month at 8 o'clock in the morning on Funishima in the Nagato Straits of Buzin Sasaki Kajiro Ganru a samurai of this fife will at his lordship's bidding fight about with Miyamoto Masashi Masana a ronin from the province of Mimasaka it is strictly forbidden for supporters of either swordsman to go to his aid or set forth on the water between the mainland and Fushinama and Funishama, sorry. Until ten o'clock on the morning of the thirteenth, no sightseeing vessels, passenger ships, and fishing boats will be permitted to enter the straits. Sixteen twelve, that, that 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 document right there. So there you go. It's on. <laughs> They're gonna fight. And for people wondering what Ronin is, that is a masterless warrior. That is a samurai without a lord. A floating, a floating person. Ninja's person. And uh, you could think of them in some cases, I mean, they, they would either be freelance, self-directed learners, an autodidact like Musashi, or they would be mercenaries. So Ronin were also swords for hire negative connotation to it negative connotation got it i would say for sure uh negative connotation uh, simply because 
the lineage and association in, in Japanese culture is so important mm -hmm. that if you, if you don't have a, a master or a particular fief that you're associated with, uh, particularly if you come from, you are born of unknown origins or from a no-name warrior, it is uh, very much a, a, an important class distinction. And uh, Sasaki also, as I understand it, and this may come up later, but used a slightly different sword. Uh, and yes, and uh, we we can get to that. Yeah, if you want me well, to hold. no, no, it's it's cool. He he uses a, a sword called the drying pole, <laughs> and for years until I was actually prepping for this podcast, I thought that that was a badass name for a sword, of course. But what I thought, I always thought to myself, that means it like dries you of your blood. That's what I thought it meant. It dries you of, his, of your blood. And then as I was researching for this podcast, it's actually, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I found, there's a method of, of drying your clothes on a stick, a long stick. And his sword was longer than most swords. Mm -hmm. And so the full name of it was the clothes drying sword. <laughs> Did I get all that right? Uh, that part, I'm not sure of. It makes sense to me. Uh, and I remember when I was in Japan a number of years ago, I go back as, as often as I possibly can. And I'm still in close contact with my host family. I've been to my brother's weddings and so on. It's just been fantastic. And I went back and I went to a Japanese sword museum, which was incredibly hard to find. And it was empty. And the I'm decent at uh, still decent at reading Japanese but it's been a long time and it's been almost 20 years or more than 20 years since I formally studied it so given there are thousands of characters one gets a little rusty and I went into this Japanese sword museum and the displays and everything you can imagine I mean it's Japan mm -hmm. things yeah. are clean meticulous and I went in and it was just walls and walls of displays with different swords from different eras so I mean swords we're talking about swords from these eras are there preserved and they look brand new. And I was walking around and there was a gentleman who was cleaning. And I asked him a question at one point about how to pronounce a character. And he proceeded to pause his cleaning and walk me through the entire museum explaining how each of them was used. And one of them, or one type I should say, which I believe is what Sasaki used, it is long and it's called a dachi. I think it's dachi. And the difference, the most remarkable difference is, A, yes, it's very long, and it is curved. And it would be used very often by horsemen. And it was curved so that they could strike down uh, their opponents without getting the blades stuck in their bodies. Because if you have a straight blade, uh, or relatively straight blade, like a katana, it's almost like having a straight bladed hatchet that you swing into a tree. It's like, thuck, and it gets stuck. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're on horseback, that's a big problem. <laughs> you lose your sword. You're in a very bad position. And so it would, it would be more of a slicing motion as opposed to a chopping motion. And the dachi was very effective for that reason. Also another reason that it tended to be longer. Yeah, because you're fighting from on top of a horse, so you got to reach down. Yeah, apparently they're saying that this sword was about nine to 12 inches longer than the normal sword. And they gave it this name, the drawing pole, which again, I always thought was about 
That's the way my mind works, Echo Charles. Don't be laughing. Oh, man. Turned Good. out, it's just drying your Everything's underwear <laughs> outside on a broom handle. Yeah. Everything's cooler in my brain. Yeah. Uh, Otsu, who, by the way, this whole time that she's been in and out, she's she. They've never actually like gotten together as as whatever mates or as permanent partners, right? It's always just been this kind of thing. Very Japanese. Yeah. Um, oh, is that very Japanese? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Just this uh, very, what we would consider sort of awkward tension that never has resolution. <laughs> right. Well, then, then, that's, then that's exactly what this is. Yeah. And that's exactly where they've been for 962 pages of a book, <laughs> right? Awkward tension for 962 pages. And God bless her. She's still like saying, hey, I'm here for you. Even if, yeah. even though he told her, I love my sword and not you. Well, now to be fair, he said, I love my sword more than I love you. No, yeah. he said, I don't dislike you. <laughs> <laughs> Which in Musashi speak yeah, is a, like, I, I will love you until my dying day. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> uh, so she is going to say goodbye to him because there's... You know, this is this is a this is a match where someone is going to die, and it's. I guess I'm looking at it, it's a little bit the older guy that is been out of practice against the young stud that's in the game fully. So she, it seems like people are thinking there's a good chance he's going to die. So he's having that final conversation with her. Otsu, please forgive me. I may seem harmless, but I'm not. Not where you're concerned. I. I know that. Do you? Truly? Yes, but I beg you, say one word for me. Just one word. Tell me that I'm your wife. It would spoil it if I told you what you know already. But, but, she was sobbing with her whole body. But with a burst of strength, she seized his hand and cried, Say it. Say I'm your wife throughout this life. He nodded, slowly, silently. Then, one by one, he pulled her delicate fingers from his arm and stood erect. A samurai's wife must not weep and go to pieces when he goes off to war. Laugh for me, Otsu. Send me away with a smile. This may be your husband's last departure. Both knew the time had come. For a brief moment, he looked at her and smiled. Then he said, until then. Yes, until then. She wanted to return his smile, but only managed to hold back the tears. Farewell. He turned and walked with firm strides towards the water's edge. A parting word rose to her throat, but refused to be uttered. The tears welled up irrepressibly. She could no longer see him. The strong, salty wind ruffled Musashi's sideburns. His kimono flapped briskly. Sasuke, bring the boat a little closer. Though he had been waiting for over two hours and knew Musashi was on the beach, Sasuke had carefully kept his eyes averted. Now he looked at Musashi and said, Right away, sir. With a few strong, rapid movements, he pulled the boat in. When it touched the shore, Musashi jumped lightly into the prow and they moved out to sea. Otsu, stop! The shout was Jotaro's, another guy that's there on the scene. Otsu was running straight toward the water. 
He raced after her. Startled, Gonosuke and Osugi joined the chase. Osu, stop. What are you doing? Don't be foolish. Reaching her simultaneously, they threw her arms around her and held her back. No, no, she protested, shaking her, her head slowly. You don't understand. What, what are you trying to do? Let me sit down by myself. Her voice was calm. When they released her, and she walked with dignity to a spot a few yards away where she knelt on the sand, seemingly exhausted. But she had found her strength. She straightened her collar, smoothed her hair, and bowed her head towards Musashi's little craft. Go without regrets, she said. That's how you do it right there. <laughs> so again, it was mentioned, or if, if I didn't explain that well enough, this battle is going to take place on a little island in the middle of a stream. And or straight. Yeah, or is it straight? Mm -hmm. What's the difference between those two? Um, well, actually, that's a great question. I, the way I, so this, oh, this is fun. Okay, so, I mean, a novel like this is created in your own head, right? It's an active experience of creating. Right. So in my head, and maybe I don't know what a straight is, but the way I envisioned a straight was almost like a... Uh, small or extended, so long but narrow sand bank in the middle of, say, a river. Okay. Okay. Uh, or a but a wide river like Mississippi type. Yeah, river. that's kind of what I pictured too. I pictured a wide, a wide, wide river mm -hmm. that has a, a little uninhabited sort of strip of land in the right. middle. Yeah, exactly. That's what I picture, and that's what you picture too. So we, yeah. I guess, we created the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> So he's in this boat and he's headed, obviously he's running late. And <laughs> as per usual, as per usual. And here we go to the book, Sasuke, may I have this? What is it? This broken oar in the bottom of the boat. I don't need it. Why do you want it? It's about the right size, Musashi said cryptically. He held the slightly waterlogged oar out with one hand and squinted down it to see if it was straight. One edge of the blade was split off. He placed the oar on his knee and, totally absorbed, began carving with his short sword. Sasuke cast backward glances toward Shimoseki several times, but Musashi seemed oblivious of the people he had left behind. Was this the way a samurai approached a life-and-death battle? To a townsman like Sasuke, it was cold and heartless. So, this is important. He picked up this old waterlogged oar from the bottom of the boat, says, can I have this? The guy says, yeah, sure. And now he starts carving it. <clears throat> Sasuke was growing more and more nervous with each stroke of the skull. He had broken out in a cold sweat. His heart was palpitating. How could a man going into battle be so calm? It would be a fight to the death, no question about that. Would he be taking a passenger back to the mainland later? Or a cruelly maimed corpse? There was no way of knowing. Musashi, thought Sasuke, was like a white cloud floating across the sky. This was not a pose on Musashi's part, for in fact, he was thinking of nothing at all. He was, if anything, a little bored. <laughs> He looked over the side of the boat at the swirling blue water. It was deep here, infinitely deep and alive with what seemed to be eternal life. 
but water had no fixed determined form. Was it not because man had a fixed determined form that he cannot possess eternal life? Does not true life begin only when tangible form has been lost? To Masashi's eyes, life and death seemed like so much froth. He felt goose pimples on his skin, not from the cold water, but because his body felt a premonition. Though his mind had risen above life and death, body and mind were not in accord. When every pore of his body, as well as his mind, forgot, there would remain nothing inside but being inside his being but the water and the clouds so he's going into a full-on like trance (laughs) yeah (laughs) full-on trance and skipping ahead a little bit here they arrive at the island go straight in musashi flew off the quilted coat the bow advanced at a very restrained pace Suzuki could not bring himself to stroke with vigor. His arms moved only slightly, exerting little force. The sound of bulbous was in the air. Sasuke, yes, sir. It's shallow enough here. There's no need to get close. You don't want to damage your boat. Besides, it's about time for the tide to turn. Silently, Suzuki fixed his eyes on a tall, thin pine tree standing alone. Underneath it, the wind was playing with a brilliant red cloak. Sasuke started to point, but realized that Musashi had already seen his opponent. Keeping his eyes on Ganru, Musashi took a russet hand towel from his obi, folded it in four lengthwise, and tied it around his wind-blown hair. Then he shifted his short sword to the front of his obi. Taking off his long sword, he laid it in the bottom of the boat and covered it with a reed mat. In his right hand, he held the wooden sword he had made from the broken oar. This is far enough, he said to Suzuki. So, he's going to fight the best swordsman in the world. He carves a wooden sword out of an oar on the way <laughs> leaves his long sword in the boat and there is uh this is a novel but there's also some historic precedent for this so he would routinely use wooden swords when dueling with opponents who were using live blades <laughs> okay Back to the book. At that moment, Musashi, his hakama, which is uh, pants, they're like. Yeah, it's kind of like a uh, Japanese kilt, let's okay. say. Very, very long. Usually comes down to the ankles. His he, hakama, hitched high on both sides, jumped lightly into the sea, landing so lightly he barely made a splash. He strode rapidly toward the waterline, his wooden sword cutting through the spray. Five steps, ten steps. Sasuke, abandoning his skull, watched in wonderment, unconscious of where he was, what he was doing. As Ganru streaked away from the pine like a red streamer, his polished scabbard caught the glint of the sun. Musashi! Ganru planted his feet resolutely in the sand, unwilling to give up an inch. Musashi stopped and stood still, exposed to the water and the wind. 
A hint of a grin appeared on his face. Kojiro, he said quietly. There was an unearthly fierceness in his eyes, a force pulling so irresistibly it threatened to draw Kajiro inexorably into the peril and destruction. The waves washed his wooden sword. Ganru's were the eyes that shot fire. A bloodthirsty flame burned in his pupils like the rainbows of fierce intensity, seeking to terrify and debilitate. Musashi! No answer. Musashi! The sea rumbled ominously in the distance. The tide lapped and murmured at the two men's feet. You're late again, aren't you? Is that your strategy? As far as I'm concerned, it's a cowardly ploy. It's two hours past the appointed time. I was here at eight, just as promised. I've been waiting. Musashi did not reply. You did this at Ichijoji and before that at the Rengion. Your method seems to be to throw your opponent off by deliberately making him wait. That trick will get you nowhere with Ganru. Now prepare your spirit and come forward bravely so future generations won't laugh at you. Come ahead and fight Musashi. The end of his scabbard rose high behind him as he drew the great drying pole. With his left hand, he slid off the scabbard and threw it into the water. Waiting just long enough for a wave to strike the reef and retreat, Musashi suddenly said in a quiet voice, You've lost, Kojiro. What? Ganru was shaken to the core. The fight's been fought. I say you've been defeated. What are you talking about? If you were going to win, you wouldn't throw your scabbard away. You've cast away your future, your life. Words! Nonsense! Too bad, Kajiro. Ready to fall? Do you want to get it over with fast? Come! Come forward, you bastard! Ho! Musashi's cry and the sound of the water rose to a crescendo together. Stepping into the water, the drying pole positioned high above his head, Ganru faced Musashi squarely. A line of white foam streaked across the surface as Musashi ran up to, on shore to Ganru's left. Ganru pursued. Musashi's feet left the water and touched the sand at almost the same instant that Ganru's sword, his whole body, hurtled at him like a flying fish. When Musashi sensed that the drying pole was coming toward him, his body was still at the end of the motion that had taken him out of the water, leaning slightly forward. He held the wooden sword with both hands, extended out to the right behind him and partially hidden. Satisfied with his position, he half grunted an almost noiseless sound that wafted before Ganyu's face. The drying pole had appeared to be on the verge of a downward slice, but it wavered slightly, then stopped. Nine feet away from Musashi, Ganru changed directions by leaping nimbly to the right. The two men stared at each other. Musashi, two or three paces from the water, had the sea to his back. Ganru was facing him, his sword held high with both hands. Their lives were totally absorbed in deadly combat, and both were free from conscious thought. The scene of battle was a perfect vacuum. 
but in the waiting stations and beyond the sound of the waves, countless people held their breaths. Above Ganru hovered the prayers and the hopes of those who believed in him and wanted him to live. Above Musashi, the prayers and hopes of others. Of Sado and Iori on the island. Of Otsu and Osuga, Osugi and Gonosuki on the beach. Of Akemi and Matahachi on their hill. All their prayers were directed to heaven. Here, hopes, prayers, and the gods were of no assistance, nor was chance. There was only a vacuum, impersonal and perfectly impartial. Is this vacuum so difficult of achievement by one who has life, the perfect expression of the mind that has risen above thought and transcended ideas? The two men spoke without speaking. Then to each came the unconscious realization of the other. The pores of their bodies stood out like needles directed at the adversary. Muscles, flesh, nail, hair, even eyebrows, all bodily elements that partake of life were united into a single force against the enemy, defending the living organism of which they were part. The mind alone was one with the universe, clear and untroubled, like the reflection of the moon in a pond amidst the ragings of a typhoon. To reach this sublime immobility is the supreme achievement. It seemed like eons, but the interval was in fact short, the time required for the waves to come in and recede a half a dozen times. Then a great shout more than vocal, coming from the depths of being, shattered the instant. It came from Ganru, and was followed immediately by Musashi's shout. The two cries, like angry waves lashing a rocky shore, sent their spirits skyward. The challenger's sword, raised so high that it seemed to threaten the sun, streaked through the air like a rainbow. Musashi threw his shoulder, his left shoulder forward, drew his right foot back, and shifted his upper body into a position half facing his opponent. His wooden sword, held in both hands, swept through the air at the same moment that the tip of the drying pole came down directly before his nose. The breathing of the two combatants grew louder than the sound of the waves. Now the wooden sword was extended at eye level the drying pole high above its bearer's head. Ganru had bounded about ten pieces away, where he had the sea to one side. Though he had not succeeded in injuring Musashi in his first attack, he had put himself in a much better position. Had he remained where he was, with the sun reflecting from the water into his eyes, his vision would soon have faltered, then his spirit, and he would have been at Musashi's mercy. With renewed confidence, Ganru began inching forward, keeping a sharp eye out for a chink in Musashi's defense and stealing his own spirit for a decisive move. Musashi did the unexpected. Instead of proceeding slowly and cautiously, he strode boldly toward Ganru, his sword projecting before him, ready to thrust into Ganru's eyes. 
The artlessness of this approach brought Ganru to a halt. He almost lost sight of Musashi. The wooden sword rose straight in the air. With one great kick, Musashi leapt high and folding his legs, reduced his six-foot frame to four feet or less. Yeah! Ganru's sword screamed through the space above him. The stroke missed, but the tip of the drying pole cut through Musashi's headband, which went flying through the air. Ganru mistook it for his opponent's head, and a smile flitted briefly across his face. The next instant, his skull broke like gravel under the blow of Musashi's sword. As Ganru lay where the sand met the grass, his face betrayed no consciousness of defeat. Blood streamed from his mouth, but his lips formed a smile of triumph. Oh no, Ganru. Forgetting himself, Iwama Kabuki jumped up and with him, all his retinue, their faces distorted with shock. Then they saw Nagoda, Sadu, and Iori sitting calmly and sedately on their benches. Shamed, they somehow managed to keep from running forward. They tried to regain a degree of composure, but there was no concealing their grief and delusion. Some swallowed hard, refusing to believe what they had seen, and their minds went blank. In an instant, the island was quiet and still as it had ever been. Only the rustle of the pines and the swaying grasses mocked the frailty and the impermanence of mankind. Musashi was watching a small cloud in the sky. As he did, his soul returned to his body, and it became possible for him to distinguish between the cloud and himself, between his body and the universe. Sasaki Kojiro Ganru did not return to the world of the living. Lying face down, he still had a grip on his sword. His tenacity was still visible. There was no sign of anguish on his face. Nothing but satisfaction at having fought a good fight, not the faintest shadow of regret. The sight of his own headband lying on the ground sent shivers up and down Musashi's spine. Never in this life, he thought, would he meet another opponent like this. A wave of admiration and respect flowed over him. He was grateful to Kajiro for what the man had given him. In strength, in the will to fight, he ranked higher than Musashi. And it was because of this that Musashi had been forced to excel himself. What was it that had enabled Musashi to, to defeat Kojiro? Skill? The help of the gods? While knowing it was neither of these, Musashi was never able to express a reason in words. Certainly it was something more important than either strength or godly providence. Kojiro had put his confidence in the sword of strength and skill. Musashi trusted in the sword of spirit.
That was the only difference between them. Silently, Musashi walked the ten paces to Kajiro and knelt beside him. He put his left hand near the nostrils of Kajiro and found there was no trace of breath. With the right treatment, he may recover, Musashi told himself. And he wanted to believe this. Wanted to believe that this most valiant of all adversaries would be spared. But the battle was over. It was time to go. Farewell, he said to Kajiro. Then to the officials on their beat benches. Having bowed once to the ground, he ran to the reef and jumped into the boat. There was not a drop of blood on his wooden sword. The tiny craft moved out to sea. Who is to say where? There is no record as to whether Ganru's supporters on Hikojima attempted to take revenge. People do not give up their loves and hates as long as life lasts. Waves of feeling come and go with the passage of time. Throughout Musashi's lifetime, there were those who resented his victory and criticized his conduct on that day. He rushed away, it was said, because he feared reprisal. He was confused. He even neglected to administer the coup de grace. The world is always full of the sound of waves. The little fishes, abandoning themselves to the waves, dance and sing and play. But who knows the heart of the sea a hundred feet down? Who knows its depth? The end. That is um, how the book finishes up. Who knows the heart of the sea? Who knows its depths? And as I read that, I wondered to myself, are we just the little fishes? Abandoning ourselves to the waves to sing and dance and play. Is that what we're doing? And I'm not saying don't have fun I'm not saying don't sing and dance and play. Enjoy life, of course, and relish the joy of life. But I think you have to make sure you don't dance your life away. Don't be one of the little fishes. And in Dokodo, that final writing of Masashi before he died, the last thing he wrote was never stray from the way. And 
I think that that's what this is about. All the fun and the singing and the dancing and all the play, it's okay. It's good. But all those things can be distractions. Because there is a path. There is a way. And you know what that way is. You know what you should be doing. And it's hard to stay on that path because it is the path of discipline and discomfort. But it is the right path. And you know that. And it is that path that will ultimately lead you to where you really want to be. So that you can live and you can die without regrets. I think a lot of times people are trying to find the path and they're looking all around different places and different people and different influences. But man, I think so often that path, you know what the path is and people know what they're supposed to be doing, but they just don't get on the path and stay on the path. Yeah, I agree. Or it's something they felt when they were eight or 12 and they, they travel the world or travel through life's experiences trying to find the answer that was in front of them the entire time. And so they come back to see what they knew with different eyes and to recognize that they knew the path all along, which is something that uh, I so enjoyed about this book and the character, both real and certainly presented by the author of Musashi who is using his experiences in this domain of the sword as a uh, means of thematic interconnectedness. And so unlike uh, Kojiro at the end, he is not just a technician with the sword, although he is a brilliant technician. Mm -hmm. He's tilling the soil. He's constructing buildings, which later he did quite a lot of uh, in terms of architecture and overseeing the building instead of destruction of things and finding at the highest levels of performance with the sword in felling opponents the, the principles, the first principles that he can apply everywhere. And that's part of what fascinates me so much about Musashi or anyone who's the best at what they do is that it could be anything. It could be pottery. It could be sniping. It could be calligraphy, but like the best. They see the depth. They see the, the interwoven web that can expand from that one fine focus into everything that they do. And I think that, for me at least, is the path and Maybe it's just coming off of a silent retreat that I want to talk this way, but it doesn't strike me as something that 
is cleanly expressed in an Instagram post or a quote necessarily. It's, it's more of a feeling. Like, you know if you're sober and take a moment to sit in the stillness. And by stillness, I don't mean sitting on a mountaintop. It could just be five minutes of silence when you first get up in the morning and observe your own mind and how you feel. Like, you know if you're on the path or not. Or at least you know when you're not on God, it. You, I, I totally agree. You know, you know when you're not on it. And I think that the feeling of being on it, when you're on the path, it has that beauty of mindlessness or no mind, is what they would say in, say, Zen, the state of no mind. And it sounds like unconscious, but it's different. It's not unconscious. It's not subconscious. It's something else where you feel that you are exactly where you should be doing exactly what you should be doing. And you're not planning. You're just putting one foot in front of the other on this path that you didn't have to find because in a way the path was seeking you the whole time. And it's just a feeling. It's a really, uh, it's a feeling I think that everyone can have, but they get so caught up. We all get caught up. Well, I don't want to speak for you two fine gents. I'll speak for myself. It's, it's easy to get caught up in the noise and the shiny objects. And just like the little fish you were talking about earlier, it's like when you see that lure, to recognize it as a lure is sort of the first step. And then to realize that when you look past the lure, all right, there's a lure 16 inches in front of you, and then you're in an ocean that has endless fathoms of depth. What a journey. Yeah, I, I, the same, the, the, the line that says, the world is always filled with the sound of waves. It's like, yeah, those sounds are going on, and the waves are out there, and there's little fishies swimming around in the waves. Yeah. Well, you, well you, you and I think you've experienced this type of that type of clarity in many different contexts. Uh, I haven't surfed much, but I have done a bit, certainly not as regularly as you have. But the feeling of when I've been out in surf that suddenly exceeded my capacities, <laughs> which is also not necessarily something I recommend, but I've had this harrowing experience, particularly as someone who didn't learn to swim until I was in my 30s, which is a whole separate thing that I think we covered in episode 50. I have fear related to the ocean, which I think is healthy on, on a lot of levels. Yeah, but when you're out there and suddenly sets come in that are 70%, 100% bigger than what you went in with, the feeling of or just sitting calmly on your board waiting for a set and looking out over the water, the sense of insignificance that you feel is not a, at least that I feel, it's not a negative thing. It's a very, uh, hesitate to use the word, but I can't find a better one, spiritual experience where you're like, oh yeah, that email, that comment on social media. <laughs> that commitment I made to go to an event that I now really six months later don't want to go to. <laughs> Who gives a fuck? It's like we're a bunch of monkeys on a spinning rock yeah. in the middle of this whole thing, whatever this whole thing is. And all that thing is singing and dancing and playing. And it's like compared to the depths of the ocean, it means nothing. Yeah. Nothing. 
Yeah, it's it's uh, it's. I just I love the the purity of. Despite his stupidity, let's be honest, right? We already talked about it. Like he made a lot of stupid decisions, storming the jail. I mean, what do you th- what do you think's going to happen? And so on and so forth. But despite all that, coming back to what he knew, one of the few things that he felt—I shouldn't say no—felt to be true to him, which was this commitment to the way of the sword. And it doesn't have to be a commitment to the way of the sword, but I've always had a certain envy. Uh, for people, including yourself, who from a very, very early age just felt a, a beacon for a direction that called them. Yeah, really lucky. I feel yeah. like I was really lucky in that aspect. Yeah. Or you meet people, I've met, for instance, Laird Hamilton, I mentioned him earlier. It's like, he still surfs every day. Wakes up at four, stoked to go out and train. <laughs> and... Uh, He's on the path. He's on the path. And I mean, this is a guy who he was with, I mean, he's out there with large tiger sharks, which are routinely out where he surfs in Hawaii, where he spends a good portion of the year. And I've heard stories and these are real, these are not several hundred years later embellished stories. These are real stories where someone was bitten by a tiger shark bleeding out. He went back to a jet ski that they had. Uh, oh, it took off some piece of clothing he had, put a makeshift tourniquet on this guy who's bleeding in the water with tiger sharks. Keep in mind, he's already been bitten. The key has been lost to the jet ski, hot wires the jet ski, and brings the guy back and saves him. And, and I'd say every few months, he saves someone's life in the water. And he's in his 50s. We were sitting in a, in a steam room at one point, and... Uh, I, 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 in retrospect, realized not a good idea to try to outlast Laird in a steam room. <laughs> but he was saying roughly along these lines, like twenty. once it's 20 feet, you can start to have fun, start to play around. He goes, 20 to, 20 to 30, yeah, you're really jamming. It's like 30 to 40, you can definitely get into the zone. He's like, above 50, you're not allowed to fall. And that's his day. Mm-hmm. And he has kids, but as far as I can tell, Gabby, who's just incredible, incredible on so many levels in her own right, she understands, like, this is his path. He's still chasing giants, and he's not going to stop. How could he? Like, that's part of who he is. What do you think draws people, like, in the wrong direction in their their life? I think it's just the little distractions, as you talk about, Echoes, little distractions, little things that just pull you off and I think I think maybe people don't want to accept the fact like they know what the path is but they want to deny it for what for whatever reason like I think that's I think that can be part of it uh, the the distraction of the path I mean I will say for those people out there who are like well for God's sake like I don't know what my path is I can't define it I don't know if I could if I could say to someone with absolute conviction, my path is X. Mm-hmm. But I can tell when I've strayed, if that makes sense. There's a certain agitation. There's a certain scattered yeah. feeling that I have. And 
as to reasons people get off the path, and I think people may have multiple paths, but you were going to say. I was going to say, because tr- I'm trying to formulate what, what we're talking about, because I know exactly what you mean. Like, th- like the path is, it, it might not be like, hey, I want to do this thing. Like, there's something else. And, and I, think it, I think the something else is, the path is how you are going to live. That's not necessarily a destination that you could you could follow the same path and get to a bunch of different destinations But the path itself of how you're gonna live how you're gonna go through life how you're gonna do things That's that's what I'm talking about and even the path that I'm on could have led to other things in in my life And even though you know, I was in the military for 20 years I'm not in the military anymore I'm still on the same path. Like the path is the same of the way I'm trying to live my life. That's the same. And if I'm in, when I'm in business, the way I, the way I run my business, I'm trying, I'm st- on the same path. It's so the path, it's like the way you're living your life more than anything else. And it doesn't matter if you're in college, if you're starting a business, if you're working for someone, the, are you on the path that you're supposed to be on? Are you living the way that you feel you're supposed to live, that you know you're supposed to live? I think people get off that. They get off that, and they're not living the way that they know they should live, regardless of circumstances. You've been in horrible circumstances before. We all, we all go in situations where things just went sideways, and, and you can either stray off the path and turn into something that you're not or something that you know you shouldn't be or you can stay on the path. You can continue to do the things that you're supposed to do and do and live the way that you wanna live. And really, lately I've been talking about, because I've been trying to explain this, you know what the right thing to do is, right? You know what you're supposed to do as a person, as you. You know what you're supposed to do. Do it. Do that thing. What is that thing that you're supposed to You know you're supposed to live a certain way. And when you don't live that way, like you said, there's, there's friction and there's tension and there's disruption and it doesn't feel right. And when you live the right way, it's often harder. It often is less immediate gratification. But the, but the internal gratification that you get from living the way you're supposed to live is very satisfying. And another thing I need to absolutely point out is I am by no means sitting here trying to say that I've always maintained I'm the worst human ever. I'm horrible. And, and, you know, I was on with a, with a guy named Charlie Plum came on the podcast and a guy named Jim, Jim Kunkel. Charlie Plum was a Vietnam uh, fighter pilot shot down, spent six years in the Hanoi Hilton and another guy named Jim Kunkel, who was a fighter pilot in world war two. And, and we got in this conversation like about, you know, doing good. And, and these guys are just, levels, infinite levels above me as far as being good people. And, and I kind of went along with the conversation almost as if I was one of their, like had that level of goodness, which I don't, you know, I mean, I'm trying, but you know, and I, when I was a young seal, I was a maniac, you know, I made Musashi look like a brilliant saint when his youth, <laughs> you know, I was a crazy maniac kid filled with just mayhem in my brain and, and all my friends, we were all the same and we got after it. And so believe me, I'm not trying to say that, but I will say that as I've grown up, I've, I've think I've gotten myself closer to living the way that I know I'm supposed to live or I, what I believe to be the right way and the right path to be on. And, you know, so I just wanted to make that quick 
caveat that anybody that's listening that's like, oh wow, Jocko is really just a saintly person. Wrong. <laughs> I'm not even remotely making that claim. Um, but I am trying. I'll give myself at least that much credit. Well, and I, I, I think that everyone is a work in progress uh, and that the path, so to speak, is illustrated for me in this book and I'll, I'll get into a couple of specifics that might be helpful for people to think about or at least have been helpful to me as I think through what distinguishes the relative lack of f- friction and uh, scatteredness and agitation versus states without those things. Because being on the path is not necessarily for me a feeling of overwhelming joy and happiness per se. It's, it's a lack of excess agitation and distractedness. And I think that what what I've found for myself is that as I get older and feel more at peace with what I'm doing and how I'm behaving, like you said, it's, it's having certain first principles in mind that transcend any given project, any given conversation, any one relationship. And early on, it's as you're hoping to define yourself or find yourself or build yourself, you all, you very often succumb because how could you not to pursuing shiny object after shiny object? And in the beginning, I think that's fine. And even for a very long period of time, you throw a lot against the wall to see what sticks and to discover what you're good at, what you're terrible at, what your weaknesses are, what your strengths are. But over time, whether you're looking at some of the most successful investors in the world, like Ray Dalio of Bridgewater Associates, they manage $160 billion at last count. And, uh, or, Athletes like Marcelo Garcia, who will not train a technique that he cannot use on a 300-pound muscular opponent. He just will not train. He does not not drill techniques that he cannot apply to someone twice his size. Uh, And these are principles, right? Whether it's, say, and, and you can take principles from one domain and transplant them, which is why I think this book is such an, an excellent illustration of the value of becoming exceptionally exceptionally good at something in a very very narrow band because when you do that the constitution and the frameworks and the principles that you develop for yourself can then be applied everywhere so in jujitsu let's just say and i'm talking out my ass a little bit since i certainly don't feel qualified to speak uh, too too much on jujitsu at this table but if you take something like position before submission, right? Let's just say for what, for whatever reason you adopt that and that's worked very well for you. You can apply that to a lot, right? You can apply that to a lot of things. And, uh, when you start to really think about precepts and principles and the Dokodo, that last, uh, short book or treatise of Musashi is, is, is in effect a a, a bulleted list of Mm -hmm. precepts and, Pretty tough to follow all of them, all of them at the same time, by the way, <laughs> if you read them. <laughs> uh, but if you just have a few, and uh, they can be very plain, very much plain speech. I mean, let's just say it's say what you mean, mean what you, mean what you say. 
do what you say you are going to do on time. I mean, very simple, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have a recipe book. You have an algorithm, which is really just a step, a, a set of steps that produce a given known predetermined outcome usually. If you follow those, you, you can start to mold and define this path, your way of moving through the world and interacting with the world. But if you're stuck in, say, the weather patterns of the world, instead of looking at sort of the tectonic plate level, and you're focused on these things that change very, very quickly, like the news cycle, like what your friends are saying on social media at all times, the fear of missing out and social expectations that are set that make you want to posture because all of your friends are putting highlights of their lives on the internet, which makes you feel like a failure because it's not all glamour shots. Those are all just shifting weather patterns. They mean nothing. Yeah. And you just, you should let those pass. As they say in this book, it comes up a lot, uh, as much as froth, yeah. froth that comes up a lot in Musashi and flies right froth and flies and insects <laughs> these passing phenomena versus thinking about in his case he uses the mountains and so on but the lower levels that tend to be less they're less sexy they don't move as quickly uh, but if you understand those slower moving and just by extension uh timeless principles and you can use those to carve and form and find rediscover your own path then i think it just gives you a much greater level of peace in part because it gives you a much greater level of agency you feel like you can craft your experience of life as opposed to being tossed back and forth by the vagaries of fast changing factors you have no control over Man, well, I suppose we could talk about this um, indefinitely, <laughs> but we're using up too much bandwidth already. Um, Echo, speaking of the path, do you have any recommendations of maybe how people could stay on the path and, <laughs> the path. and, and, yeah. and you know, maybe even support you? Sure. Uh, real quick, though, you, as far as pronunciation goes, mm -hmm. when there's like a double consonant, you kind of say them both, huh? Like like this Dokodo. You say Dokodo. Yeah, and there's a little stutter in it. Yeah, yeah, because it's almost like you got to finish the first K and then start the second K. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's yeah, it's kind of a. I think it would be considered a, what they what they call a glottal stop. So like Hokkaido in Japan is actually Hokkaido. Right, right. And but if there was only one K, it'd be Hokkaido. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. That. yeah or school it took me a long time to, <laughs> which was really embarrassing. In the beginning, working on my pronunciation, uh, <laughs> I, I had to say the word school a lot. I was going to school, walking to school. When are you going to school? And it's gakko, mm -hmm. which has that little stutter. Yeah. And man, did I mess that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I certainly uh, cast a broad apology to all of my, my, my Japanese friends, especially. Yeah. They're going to be going crazy. I'm sorry. It's, it's interesting that you care because in, in, in the Hawaiian language, they put a... I, it's actually considered another letter 
it's it's called the okina it's basically an apostrophe yeah and that you in hawaii there's a lot of vowels go together right mm-hmm. so when you want when you want to do that little function to separate mm-hmm. them you put the okina there like like the word hawaii hawaii there's two eyes at mm-hmm. the end so you say hawaii remember you were asking me oh how do you say kawaii how do you say kawaii is it kawaii or kawaii mm-hmm. i think technically it's kawaii, kawaii. But people typically don't say kawaii anymore that's a whole nother thing. Very, very similar. But similar deal, right? Similar deal. Except and this is with consonants straight yeah, up. Yeah, and uh, I don't want to take us too far afield, but you, you, there are some really weird similarities between Japanese and other languages where there may have been trade routes established mm. before the dawn of man in weird places. Hmm. Uh, so you, there are some commonalities in Polynesian languages. And then you also find incredible commonalities with Turkish of Turkish. all languages. Yeah. Nearly identical grammar. I remember when I was taking linguistic classes and they would, they would point out these weird, weird commonalities that you say, wow, that's, you know, like things that like the number one, things like the sun, things that, you know, everyone kind of has to have created a word for at some point. Yeah, there's definitely some strings and I, I forget what they are. I didn't study hard enough. <laughs> I wasn't on the path closely enough. <laughs> but a lot of these languages, like the, you know, even the pronunciation of like A is ah, mm-hmm. you know, Japanese, Hawaiian. Yeah. You know, all very, these other Very ones. soft yeah. vowels, typically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, A, E, O, U. Yeah. And then the I is like E. Yeah. 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 Japanese people can handle Spanish is probably the closest that I've seen language that they can handle any language that ends on consonants a lot is going to be so hard mm. yeah. i remember oh they have such a tough time <laughs> they add the u at the end yeah the, timu. The timu, timu or, yeah if they say or biru or yeah biru namabiru mcdonald's is makudonarado yeah 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 <laughs> and man they have a tough time uh but the and they and for those people wondering the reason they can't or have so much trouble distinguishing between r's and l's mm. which uh, many other asian people do not but in the case of Japanese, is because they have a blended phoneme, a blended sound. It's a it's a combination of R, L, and D. So la di do is how they say it. So that du that like sound is not clearly distinguished into multiple consonants in Japanese, which is why they have so much trouble with R's and L's. But you can teach them to fix that in a few minutes if you explain how the tongue is positioned. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember at one point give credit to my first Japanese teacher, Mr. Shimano, who was fantastic because we would hit a sticking point in class. We'd be going over some concept that was really difficult for a native English speaker's brain to wrap itself around. Like they have subject markers and the difference between wa and ga. And if it's known to the speaker, it's this. If it's not known to the speaker, it's that. And you're like, wait, what? What does that even mean? And he could sense because uh, I, I transferred from a very weak school, very bad school on Long Island to a very highly competitive school in New Hampshire that had classes six days a week, mandatory seated meal like Dead Poet Society, mandatory sports, classes from 8 a.m. or so to about 6 p.m. And the Japanese class was very often the class after sports. So people wiped out, hadn't had dinner and we'd be struggling and getting agitated with some aspect of Japanese, and he could tell that we were we were we were losing it. But we still had forty five minutes to go, so he'd say, "All right." Had a really strong Japanese accent, and he'd be like, "We're going to stop for a minute, and I am going to attempt to say 
this word for you. And he would write squirrel on the blackboard. <laughs> if you want to talk about a word that would be designed to be kryptonite for a Japanese person. And so he would, he would take like five minutes for just comedic effect to just go squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. And he'd do that for like a few minutes and we'd crack up and loosen up and realize, okay, everyone who's learning a new language has some type of sticking point like this. And then he'd be like, okay, enough fun and games. Now back to the hard stuff. He's an excellent, excellent teacher. Yeah, that's Legit. Speaking of hard stuff. Speak quick, my brother, please, for the love of God. <laughs> All good. I was going to talk more about your retreat, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> In the meantime, we're going to take care of our joints. OriginMain.com is a good uh, spot to get these joint supplements, Jocko supplements. Super krill oil, not just regular krill oil. Super krill. Are you on krill oil? Yeah, krill oil upstairs, actually. Boom. There you go. Also, another one called Jocko Joint Warfare. It's a blend of joint um, degeneration warfare weapons. Check. Technically. <laughs> also, for some legit fitness gear, if you're into kettle, you into kettlebells? Yeah, I have some in my uh, my garage here. It's the only the only fitness tools I have right now are two kettlebells. Boom. There you go. So, boom. I you got mine rack. from Onnit. Yeah, squat rack is dope. <laughs> I go to a gym for that right now, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll get, I'll but get kettlebells that. are dope. Yeah. Especially the ones from Onnit, by the way. Werewolf. Gorilla. Bigfoot chimp. I'm just listing the ones. Oh, I, I thought you were, call, I thought you were killing me, calling me names. So I thought you were trying out new names for me. <laughs> no, no, no. Those are the kettlebells I have. You know, the artistic ones. Oh, I know. Yeah, the dope ones. Did you, you know, say like, artistic or autistic? Artistic. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Artistic. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think they're autistic at all. But they are dope, though, yeah, in like my opinion. You're cool. the regular ones? I have the eyes. So we're, we're sitting here in Austin, Texas, not too far from on at HQ. And I actually bought two of the, the standard issue. Uh, I know. know. You like me. Yeah. Just cut, not cut, much to art. The, cut the, yeah. the decorations and just go. I, I, I keep they got some new Star Wars separate. ones though. They do. Yeah, yeah. The Darth Vader one and stormtrooper. The, the Darth Vader one's cool. Yeah. I've seen it. You got to kind of admit it after a while. You're like, <laughs> okay. I mean me, I don't care. I'm like, Hey, come to my house. See my kettlebells. Yeah. They're dope. But some people Jocko, they're like, no, you know, yeah. wants to stay hardcore, I'm, but I'm, you got to admit it. I'm more of a Boba Fett guy myself, but yeah, I do see? like Darth Vader. Yeah. Check those out. Anyway, on it.com. That kind of, they got other stuff on there too. Um, pretty much for any kind of workout other than what, like your typical gym workout, like they have maces and whatnot. So anyway, go there on it. Yeah. And just com. as a side note for people listening, don't, uh, all right. I've had enough caffeine. I've been off caffeine for 10 days. So I've got a lot of personality right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good. don't let perfect be the enemy of good when it comes to working out or home gyms or anything like that. Don't say I can't start because I don't have these seven pieces of equipment for two years when I had very little money and, and was training in jujitsu when I just moved to the Bay area, which is stupidly expensive. I had roommates and no space whatsoever. I had one 53 pound kettlebell and I did everything with that kettlebell yeah. mm -hmm. I did. And I got into that combined with jujitsu. That's all I had space for was one kettlebell. I got into some of the best shape of my entire life. Yeah. You're like kettlebell 53 pounds. That's nothing. It's like, okay, do 20 pistols yeah. with 53 pounder. Yep. Yeah. Ask, You're done. Yeah. Let's see how you do it. <laughs> yeah. Let's see if you can do one with a 53 yeah. pounder. Yeah. Kettlebell. Yeah. Cause a lot of people couldn't even do one pistol with a 53 oh, pound yeah. pound yeah. kettlebell. Yeah. That's like the goal. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I was, well, I don't want to say I was against kettlebells before, but you know when they first kind of came on the scene here? Yeah. And and people were like, yeah, kettlebells, and look how cool we are. You know how, like, when people do that, you kind of build this kind of natural, re- oh, not sure. resentment, but just it, some resistance. Like, yeah, oh, I'm skepticism. not going to jump on your little bandwagon. I see what you're doing, you know? I'm going to yeah. stick to this. What? Yeah. And then finally I got on the boat and kind of should have got on that earlier, man. Yeah. The kettlebells. And you, d- and you don't need to be, uh, I will say, not a doctor, don't play one on the internet, but just to uh, to keep Jocko's liability insurance premiums low, uh, <laughs> kettlebells don't get too fancy kids with the kettlebells don't pick up a kettlebell for the first time and try to do snatches yeah (laughs) it's a good way to uh get reconstructive shoulder surgery yeah you don't need to do a whole lot if you just do two-handed kettlebell swings properly which i would not in my book would not be above the shoulder and you do let's just say some turkish get-ups even partial turkish get-ups and a handful of other exercises on particular to windmills and Cossack squats and so on, you really don't need much. And you, you don't have to do potentially dangerous ballistic movements to get a lot out of kettlebells. Yeah, and I personally would even go further and say don't do much. Like, especially yeah. like the like Turkish get the snatch to yeah. like these ones where snatch if in you particular. Go, yeah, if you're trying to like, let me see how much I can get and let me get that big one. Because it's cool. You look at them. And this one's like obviously bigger than the other one. Oh, I like do how that you're talking one, over here. Because like the last time you were at my house, I was over there doing every exercise with the biggest <laughs> kettlebells I have. Yeah, see, yeah, yeah. So I dig it, man. But man, if you start doing these snatches or the, man, I had to, I have this Bigfoot one. It's 90 pounds. Yeah, and so I can, I mean, now I can, boom, clean and press one hand. I'll go like, I'll go to this side and to this side and to this side. You know, I'll do that. And it wasn't like, I don't know if I wasn't warm or I just hit it at the wrong angle. I got it up to here. And then when I pressed it up, I think it was too far back. Yeah. So it went like when I press, it was weird. You know how kettlebells are. They, they hang back there. Right? Yeah. So when I pressed it up, it's almost like it went backwards. Messed up my shoulder a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You will be able to press as well as you can clean. So if you cannot clean a weight extremely smoothly to your side, do not try to press it. Yeah. And just be careful there. Start light. That's the point, right? Yeah. Unless you're Jocko. Start heavy. I'm not saying anything over here <laughs> because of liability. Yeah, I know yeah. I give the worst advice on this kind of stuff. So. Yeah. Sometimes, yes, for sure. Also, uh, if you don't have a copy of Musashi, yeah, I'm going to list it on the website. Uh, go to jockopodcast.com. Go to the books section right there in the top menu. Boom. Click on there. It'll be actually it's been on there. It's been on there since you mentioned yeah, it. It's been on there for a year. Yeah. Musashi. So if you a lot of people know, have boom. read it. Yeah. I'll put it right at the top. Don't even have to scroll down. Boom. Click on it. There could, it I, is. could I add another book to the... Right, you can book yes, page or of recommendation. Hundred thousand percent. That's a lot of percent. I'm on it. <laughs> uh, so, I have a brand new book that uh, is out, which Jocko is a part of, as uh, con- as a continuation of our our lifelong partnership. Uh, Jocko has a reappearance in Tribe of Mentors, uh, which is I think the easiest to read book that I have yet put together. It is uh, brand spanking new. Has 130 people all asked the same 11 questions that were most burning for me. And uh, is that a thousand page book? 
Because it's, it's thick. It's <laughs> thick. It's shorter than Musashi, which isn't saying much. It is uh, about 650 pages. Each profile is ranges between two and ten pages. And uh, a number of the people who came up in our conversation, like Dan Gable, who won a gold medal in the Olympics for wrestling without having a single point scored on him. Ridiculous. It's like winning Wimbledon <clears throat> without having a point scored on yeah. him. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen, people. Uh, and uh, many, many, many others. Uh, so it covers every possible facet of human performance, whether it's uh, physical training, uh, expert meditators, world-class investors, the founders of Facebook, Twitter, Salesforce, LinkedIn, you name it. If you want super, super tactical nuggets of advice, including some from our good friend, Jocko Willing, <laughs> then uh, Tribe of Mentors is a easy-to-digest, choose-your-own-adventure book that uh, would be a nice nonfiction compliment to our friend Musashi. Yeah, I'm put it up there right next to it. Boom. And so what that does is you click on it, takes you through to Amazon. Boom. You know? And what was the what was the website again for your book page? Jockopodcast.com. I think it might be slash books, maybe, but the easiest way, you know, the top menu, the yeah. website, but it's just it's books. books from the pot, from episodes, whatever. Bam. Yeah. Click on there. Boom. Click through there. And if you're doing any other Amazon shopping, you know, hey, carry on. No one's going to stop you there. Also, subscribe to the podcast. I was just going to say, they may have already uh, removed this uh, little glitch in the system, but I used to be able to buy trap bars and so on on Amazon Prime with no shipping. Trap bars. Uh, right. yeah. So a hex bar. Equipment. Oh, right, right. It's like, a, it's like 60 pounds to 100 pounds of metal. Uh, so yeah. while, while you're picking up your brain food, you can pick up your body tools. Boom, potentially. Yeah. Dig it. You Dang, can get no anything shipping. from Amazon. Yeah, Amazon's pretty good with their shipping situation. <laughs> I got to awesome. tell you, oh, yeah. like even if the, you want it, like whatever the next day, you know, they're like pay additional shipping. It's like four bucks or something. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, they got something right on that one. Anyway, also subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and Spotify. I think. I think real confident there. Yeah, no, you know, whatever you're listening to the podcast on, boom, subscribe. Also on YouTube, if you haven't already, there's more than just the podcast on YouTube. It's excerpts on YouTube. Well, are you going to put some some uh, takeaways or what are they called? Outtakes from this Outtakes. one because there were some pretty funny ones in the yeah. beginning there. Yeah, uh, well, I forget, I forget we'll that they were, but we were all laughing. So <laughs> yeah, sure yeah, I think so. In fact, yes, that's exactly what I'm going to do, which is one of the many reasons to subscribe to the YouTube channel, in my opinion. What is the YouTube channel? Jocko Podcast. You're a pro. The ubiquitous. You're a pro. Making sure we spell it out. I'm so bad at this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just the hand wavy P.D. Barnum guy. Yeah, I guess technically when we say subscribe to the podcast, technically we are asking them to go on YouTube, search for Jocko Podcast, make sure it's the correct one. You know, sometimes they'll be like, Jocko Academy or something. See, Tim, adding tons of value. Yeah, you could just get... You could get, and uh, since this will not be published for probably a few hours at least, you guys could get a URL like jockosubscribe.com and then have it point to a page on your website where you have all of the links where people can click for different services to subscribe. Man, I wish I had somebody that worked with me that like did computer type stuff and stuff like that. 
Because maybe they would have done that you already. You know what's funny? At the beginning, when we first started this stuff, like the, the, I was thinking of all of these things. This is what I'm, I'm going to buy. Jocko Podcast this and all this, and we can have them all, and we'll all do this stuff. And then um, like your whole attitude. You didn't tell me not to do it. I, I'll, I'm not blaming this on you. I'm just saying that that's what I was real fired up to do. But he's like, no, man, that's it. Jocko Store. That's it. You know, like super simple. So I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's cool right there. So like all the cool little things. Now, I will. I'll, I'll, I will. In Jocko's defense. <laughs> I'm so. No, no, say it. I'm not sure. You're they're, messing they're, this whole thing I up. see tears welling up in the eyes. Uh, in Jocko's defense, I will say that a lot of people who try to start podcasts or do X get caught with the obsession on new tactics and then above tactics you would have strategy and then above strategy you would have principles and so if if you're constantly focused on optimizing for an additional one percent with these tools you get nowhere on the other hand if i would say like you guys have done with this podcast focus on exceptionally high quality that fixes a lot of problems Mm. and then other people use tactics on your behalf and you don't have to be as concerned with the ebb and flow and expiration dates of said tools so mm-hmm. there's always a good time always a market right on that side the right. only yes. uncrowded market is great that's the only <laughs> uncrowded market yeah. dang see and just to be clear when you were like that it wasn't that you were like influencing me not to do it. You just like the way you were was cool to me. I was like, dang, that's cool. So I'm going to just keep it super simple too. You know, so it was me just trying to, trying to be like you. But yeah, I thought of that same thing. I'm going to have a thing and it'll have all the links. Oh man, it'll be great. But then meanwhile, he's like, let's record yeah. a podcast. So, okay, let's do that. You know, so we let uh, that other stuff go. Anyway, YouTube, back to YouTube. Jocko, Jocko podcast, Jocko the podcast. regular logo, black White letters, boom, that's it. That's the one that you want to subscribe to. Also, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. Yeah, see that? No bells, no whistles. JockoStore.com. T-shirts, travel mugs, bumper stickers, all that stuff. Some rash guards. New rash guards. Hoodies? Thicker hoodies. I got people Warmer sending me pictures hoodies. of thermometers in Nebraska. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Say, where's my hoodie yeah, at, dude? Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, someone did that to me, too. Yeah. What about your uh, your crop tops with the discipline equals love <laughs> on them? Are those out of stock still? Those are out of stock, bro. <laughs> Actually, but the women's stuff is back in stock as well. That was out for a while. For the girls, you know, for the girls, for the ladies. Yeah. Boom, back in the game, big time. Some patches in there, and... Again, the rash guards, Warrior Kid. I think yeah. that's the one. Yeah. Actually, there's another one. They're oh, out. Yeah, you They're see. out. Or uh, Pete's got them running. Question Made about rash guards. Mm-hmm. I always assumed, because I'd never seen rash guards until a few years into the jujitsu game, I guess, or observing that, I assumed that rash guards became part of jujitsu because Brazilians also surf a lot and would then just use them in the gym. What is the function of the rash guard. I've never quite understood that. I know that because uh, let's say versus wearing a tight fitting, like sweat wicking shirt. Well, uh, I mean, it's not going to be as tight fitting as a rash guard is right. A rash guard is as tight fitting as 
a piece of garment can be right. and therefore your fingers won't get caught in it your toes won't get caught in it you, it. it won't get in the way and that's that's why now you could also just go shirtless but when you go shirtless now you've got you know ringworm and yeah. and all whatever other heinous forms of <laughs> diseases that live on the mat mm-hmm. and so that's and it's just kind of you know it just takes it one one separation away from pure nastiness when you're rolling with everyone what you you guys should make maybe i'm the only one with this issue but i always find i feel constricted at the neck and hot in certain rash guards not all rash guards but if there were one that gave some space to the neck that would be yeah i Uh, think i think some brands will have a wider neck wider neck Um, some brands will actually on purpose have like a higher neck yeah right some people want full coverage in the gym, they want they don't want to make human contact with anybody just else. A, yeah. spi- just a yeah. Spider-Man outfit while they're <laughs> yeah. trying to throw yeah. on like, no ki- a Actually, uh, there's people that wear little hoods. I'm not kidding. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's getting crazy. Yeah, that's people with like hair or something yeah. like that. Like long, yeah. you know, long hair yeah. and stuff. They'll do that hood thing. That's cool. Hey. But hey. I can get you. I can get you whatever kind of rash guard you want. A loose neck rash guard. I'll get you a loose rec- neck rash guard. You want a one piece? And it'll say discipline equals <laughs> like love. Like, if you could get me a discipline equals love unitard <laughs> for my re-entry to the jiu-jitsu world. Yeah. That'll go over good. Just before I tapped at T. Ferris out, comma, <laughs> I commented on yeah. his garment. Yeah. <sighs> but yeah, hey, jockostore.com. That's where you get them. They're cool. Also, Psychological Warfare. If you don't know what that is, it's an album with tracks, Tim Ferris. that if you're on the path no, fully. But you find those days or those moments, whatever, that maybe you might want to get this or you feel like you're going to choose to step off the path. That's what it's for, really. It's not like when you suddenly get distracted. It's like, I'm going to wake up at what, five? And I'm just too tired. I'm not going to wake up at five. I'm going to sleep in. You listen to one of these tracks, the specified track, though. Wake up and get a, what's it called? Wake up and get after it. Wake up and get after it. What it is, is you play it and it's Jocko telling you why you should wake up and get after it pragmatically in his own Jocko way. But there's, there's tracks for everything though. Waking up, slipping on the diet, skipping the workout, blah, 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 all that stuff. Now, let me interject here or or actually take over if you don't mind. Please. Because the Psychological Warfare uh, album on iTunes was the number one spoken word album for about, I think, nine months straight. And unfortunately good news and bad news it was just taken down for it just got beat out as the number one album there's now a new number one album yeah giraffes can't dance <laughs> it's not giraffes can't yeah. dance the new number one album on itunes spoken word is discipline equals freedom field manual now it is number one did it's you true. see that yeah <laughs> i get the report every day so if you've been looking for discipline equals freedom field manual in audio form yet formula it's not on audible because then you couldn't put it in your alarm. You couldn't listen to tracks whenever you wanted to. That's why we didn't do it that way. We put it as an, as an album with tracks on Amazon, Music, Google Play, Spotify, apparently. Spotify, everywhere. Ale- I think you can ask Alexa. She'll deliver it. Yep. Alexa, like, boom, you're there. Uh, so that's out. Also on Amazon, Jocka White Tea. Most people think it's the best tea that they've ever had. And it's guaranteed um, and scientifically proven to improve increase your deadlift to a minimum of 8,000 pounds. We have mm-hmm. all backed up data on that Double one. blind. Double blind, quick trip, quadruple blind. <laughs> uh, other books to get on Amazon, and we might as well just put all these books on our website. 
so first, Tim. Tim, obviously, four-hour work week, four-hour chef, four-hour body, Tools of Titans. Those are all books, awesome books. And I was thinking about four-hour work week. And what I was thinking about four-hour work week that I think when I read it for the first time, which was before I knew you, what it did, I didn't follow anything in your book for our work week. I didn't. I didn't follow one thing. Maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe there's two or three things in there. But what it did, though, is it made me look at things in a different way. Because you were saying, look, here's this. And you looked at it from over here. And what it showed me was like, I can look at things differently. And, you know, like I said, I probably grabbed a couple things from there. But the most important thing that it gave me was like, okay, you don't have to look at this the way everyone else is looking at it. And that's the, that's the best damn drill you can get from somebody or the best advice you can get somebody is like, don't look at things the same way everyone else is. There's a whole nother angle. And once I saw what angle you were looking at it from, I looked, I started saying, well, well let's look at it from my angle. What is this going to look like from over here? So that's, you know, a, a great book. And again, the four hour chef, which isn't, it's about cooking, but it's really about learning. It's really about learning Four hour body, all kinds of good experiments that you did on yourself you're similar to me in the fact that I'm always chasing some different goal. I'm either trying to do max pull-ups or I'm trying to do a max deadlift or I'm trying to cut down my one mile runtime. I've always got some random thing that I'm trying to do. And I, and, and I explain this, um, I actually explained it when I was just on your podcast. I, I, if I, I'm not going to get to a 600 pound deadlift because my whole life would have to be different and I wouldn't be able to do other things that I like to do. So I get to an 80% or an 85% of what I'm actually humanly capable of. And then I'm looking for that next goal because I'm not going to change my entire life. Uh, but what, what the, what, what the four hour body is good for is you've got a lot of different things that you can bounce from thing to thing and they're all going to improve some aspect. So I, I thought that was awesome. Tools of Titans, obviously, um, tons of, of, good information from a, a lot of different people. And, and now you got tribe of mentors and it's interesting because, you know, when we talk about for 20 minutes or however long we were talking about the path for, well, for people out there that are, are saying like, well, wh- what, what path? And I'm sitting here trying to explain it. It's hard. I, I don't think I did a good job. I, I took a swing at it. But what's cool is you get a book like Tribe of Mentors and you can kind of get a feel for what other people's paths are and how they stay on them and way they live their lives. And then you can at least at a minimum, get a different perspective from different people, which just like for our work week for me is very important to see different people's angles on the way they look at things. It's, it's like, it's an eye opener at a minimum. Yeah. The lens. I mean, if you, if you have a set of different lenses that you can look through to evaluate the world and make decisions, evaluate yourself and make different decisions it's it, it can really change your life and the lives of those around you very very quickly uh what's what's been fun about putting together in this case tribe of mentors is that i'm asking people the same 11 questions so for instance i might ask what do you do or what do you tell yourself when you feel overwhelmed or get distracted so we we're talking about staying on the path and i asked I, that was one of the questions that I sent to everyone and people were able to pick and choose their questions. But when you see that across disciplines and so you have everyone from say David Lynch or Darren Aronofsky who are uh, incredible directors uh, to the Dan Gables, the uh, Kelly Slater's most decorated surfer of all time uh, to artists and investors and so on. 
there are commonalities so you can spot patterns and then assemble your own toolkit of these first principles that we've been talking about. So for instance, one that I've been applying, there are many that I've been applying myself from the book. Uh, you may have met Kyle Maynard before. I, I know who he is. So, and I, I have met him, yeah. So yeah. Kyle, incredible guy, uh, congenital quad amputee, that means he was born without arms or legs, became a wrestler, I mean, among many other things. I mean, became mm-hmm. a wrestler, lost every match his first season, and his, uh, his dad supported him throughout it all. They were accused of child abuse. He kept competing, and then he started winning. And the same people who said it was child abuse were like, oh, he has, now he has an unfair advantage <laughs> because people can't grab his arms and legs. I was like, really? Wow, what a world. And uh, just a fascinating guy who has done a lot, climbed Kilimanjaro. I think he was the first person ever to do so, a quad amputee without prosthetics, carried the ashes of a, a, a fallen uh, member of our military to the top, which was their one of their dying wishes. And he gave a piece of advice uh, that he learned from a, a business icon, which was, you can't answer seven. And what that refers to is any time you are rating for yourself, say how important something is or how much you want to do something on a scale of zero to 10, you can't use seven. If you're asking someone for feedback, they can't use seven. Why? Because all of a sudden now they can't choose what I realized after reading it uh, is a safe, comfortable, nebulous number. And that's Mm -hmm. always seven. Now you have to choose a six, which is barely better than 50% or an eight. And you you get to you accelerate your path to better decisions almost immediately just by adopting that, or the way that say Daniel Negreanu, Fedor Holtz, these are two of the uh, biggest winning poker players of all time. One in live in person tournaments, the other online, and to look at their decision frameworks, how they decide how much to bet, how they stake other people. These are all tools that you can apply everywhere. It's really cool stuff. Uh, so yeah, Tribe of Mentors has been a very, very fun book to put together. Yeah, um, it's. Uh, I've been on the road, but one of your people sent it to me, so I think it's waiting for me at my house when I get back, so I'm uh, stoked on that one. Uh, and what you showed me that I flipped through, that's kind of why I know it's um, gonna be cool for people to get, again, find, find, find the path find various paths and, and help them, guide them towards theirs. Uh, I also wrote a couple other books. One of them's called Way of the Warrior Kid. It's about a kid who turns into a warrior kid. Best book ever. Sure. Uh, Extreme Ownership, book about leadership. It's combat leadership principles from war and how to apply them in your business and life. The Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. Um, once again to everyone that got this book including Tim yes thank you for supporting it uh, also the the book because of your support it made the uh, New York Times bestseller list which is which is pretty awesome thank you uh, everyone thank you Tim of course um, that's awesome and and you know the book it doesn't follow any f- formula really it's um, not normal. It's kind of like this podcast. It's not normal. It's not, you know, not everyone's going to get it. Some people are going to turn in, on this podcast and go, I don't think I can listen to that. That's okay. Same thing with the book. That's okay too. I'm not here to write things that everyone likes. And I'm not here to record a podcast that everyone lists, wants to listen to. I'm okay with that. Um, 
the, those of you that do get it, thank you for forgetting it. <laughs> for those of you who don't get it, why are you still listening? It's three and a half hours later. <laughs> Stop point. punishing yourself. <laughs> they're, they're imposing discipline on themselves. I can make it through this guy's annoying voice for another 20 minutes. Uh, like I said, the audio version is on MP3, MP3 platforms. I've been asked that 5,000 times on social media. I've it's answered. everywhere, by the way. Everywhere. everywhere. So that's good. If you need some leadership support for your team or for your business, Echelon Front, that's our leadership consulting company. It's me, Leif Babin, JP Donnell, Dave Burke. Info at echelonfront.com if you want to get it. Echo, you got any clothing thoughts? That's it. Thanks, Tim. Again. Yeah, thank you, gentlemen. And I use the word gentlemen loosely. <laughs> if you want to keep this conversation going, we are actually on the interwebs fairly heavily on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, Echo is at Echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink. And Tim is at T Ferris, two R's, two S's on Twitter, on Instagram, at Tim Ferris, two R's, two S's on Facebook, Tim Ferris. You got it. Did I miss anything else? All right, Tim, any closing thoughts from you, sir? Any closing thoughts? I'll share one quote, if people like quotes, that I think relates well to a lot of what we talked about, and certainly Musashi, and this is a quote from Archilochus. So by the sound of the name, you might guess it's very, very old. And it is, we do not rise to the level of our expectations, we fall to the level of our training. Hope is not a strategy, as James Cameron would say. Train hard. Train. Train hard. Uh, Tim, as always, thanks for everything. I, I literally would not be sitting here right now if it wasn't for you. Um, and what's cool is you've helped me out a lot, but more importantly, you've helped out all kinds of people all over the world. I think that's awesome. The content that you put out, the advice that you give to people. And so thank you for what you've done for me and thanks for what you do for all kinds of people everywhere. Thank you, Jack. Much appreciated. Uh, and while I'm thanking people to close this out, I want to thank the real warriors out there that are in uniform on the front holding the line against evil. Thank you for what you do. And those of you that are back here in uniform at home, police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, all the other first responders, thank you all for keeping our homeland safe. And to everyone else that's listening, just remember that the world is filled with the sound of waves and the waves are filled with little fishes. Let them play. Let them dance. Let them sing. You, you get on the path and stay on the path and keep getting after it. And until next time, this is Tim Ferriss and Echo and Jocko. Out. <laughs>